Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, astrologer Nick Dagan-Best is joining me, and we have a eclipse extravaganza for you. We were going to look at a ton of eclipse charts to show you what it looks like and what some of the most major solar and lunar eclipses were in history that coincided with major historical events. Uh, so, hey, Nick, thanks for joining me. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me back. All right. So we have done an intense bit of research here recently for this episode, and we've gone through and found a lot of different examples of basically some of the most defining events in the history of humanity over the past several thousand years, and how many of those important turning points actually coincided with either a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse or both. Um, so this has been some really amazing research, and I'm excited to share it with people because I think that by studying what eclipses have meant in the past and what they've coincided with, um, we're really going to learn a lot about what eclipses mean in astrology, but then we can also use some of this information to then use them to predict the future and what future eclipses will coincide with. That's right. So that's part of what you've done with your research in general with Venus retrogrades, but here we're going to apply it to eclipses. So, all right. So our data for those curious. So today we're recording this on Wednesday, October 18th, 2023, starting at 12, 13 PM in Denver, Colorado. Not sure what episode of the show is, but there's the data. So part of the premise of this discussion is that this month we're actually in between eclipses right now where there are, there's a solar eclipse that just occurred recently in the sign of Libra. And there's a lunar eclipse that's coming up in the sign of Taurus. And of course, um, right now it's already coincided with some really major um, events in terms of the, the conflict between Israel and Palestine and some of the just deep human tragedy and suffering that's occurring right now. Um, and clearly the eclipses are one factor um, indicating that we're at a very important event and sort of potential turning point in world history. So I wanted to look back into the past and collect and identify some other important events that have coincided with eclipses in the past in order to get a better sense for both the positive as well as the negative implications of eclipses um, and see what we can learn from history that might then be applicable to the present as part of the process of sort of what we do sometimes as astrologers, even when there's some really difficult or, or tragic or terrible things happening in the world is try to understand them from this vantage point. Yeah, I'm excited. We we got we found a lot of interesting stuff. I can't wait to share it with everyone. Yeah. All right. So we're going to do a quick little introduction to the astronomy of eclipses here at first. Um, then eventually we're going to get into the early Mesopotamian tradition, and eventually we're going to get into chart examples. And we have dozens and dozens of major chart ex examples to share of eclipses. So there will be timestamps for this episode. So if you want to jump around, you can find those either on the YouTube video or on the podcast website if you're listening to the audio version of this episode. All right, so let's jump into it. Very quick rundown of the astronomy of eclipses. So um, as we all know, every month there's a new moon and a full moon, which is a conjunction and an opposition between the sun and the moon. Um, these are conjunctions, though, that take place in longitude in terms of the degrees and signs of the zodiac, but not necessarily in latitude. And what happens is that about every six months, the sun and moon come into alignment in both longitude as well as latitude, 
And this is when the path of the moon actually crosses the path of the sun, and then you get an eclipse, which in its most ideal form is, for example, in a solar eclipse, when the moon directly passes in front of the body of the sun and eclipses or occults or obscures the sun, basically hiding the sun between behind the body of the moon. So um, this is a really striking um, thing visually where it can actually block out the sun in the middle of the day and make it appear dark around you. Um, and what, that's something that we saw actually recently, just a few days ago, I actually woke up and I thought I had missed the eclipse, but then I looked outside and everything was just like gray outside. And it looked like the color had been sucked out of the air. And that was just in a partial solar eclipse here in Denver. It wasn't even in the, in the path of totality, um, but it really is like a very striking visual phenomenon. If you, if you witness one in person, have you witnessed one? Uh, yeah. Um, although I did just miss this, this last one, unfortunately I was preoccupied. Okay. Um, so that's a solar eclipse with a lunar eclipse. What happens is that the earth's shadow obscures the face of the moon and makes it dark. So even though it's at a full moon, when the moon is at its most brightest, if the moon is visible, what will happen is right for example, in the middle of the night, the, the moon, which is shining light and being the luminary during that part of the night, suddenly you'll see a shadow like fall in front of the face of the moon. And suddenly, again, it becomes occulted or it becomes darkened, where it goes from being very bright to very dark. I actually have a picture of a lunar eclipse that I took, I think it was like a year or two ago um, from here in Denver. And you can mm -hmm. see the, the shadow starting to cover the moon. And one of the things that happens sometimes with lunar eclipses is that due to atmospheric things, the moon will appear red and sometimes like really red, like blood red. So it looks kind of um, kind of ominous and kind of creepy. And that will tie into some of our understanding of eclipses that we're going to get to in this episode. Yep. All right. So in terms of the zodiac, I want to talk a little bit about eclipses in the zodiac since that's one of the things we're going to focus on the most in this episode. So eclipses come in pairs um, where there's basically a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse that will always occur roughly, that will always occur two weeks apart. And typically they will happen um, two weeks apart in opposing signs. So for example, here is some eclipses that were occurring um, in 2022 where we see, for example, April 30th, there was a solar eclipse in Taurus. And then um, two weeks later, uh, and then and then later, basically, then there was an eclipse in Scorpio on May 16th. So exactly two weeks later, there was a lunar eclipse. Or later that year, there was a solar eclipse in Scorpio on October 25th. And then two weeks after that, there was a lunar eclipse in Taurus. So they always occur about two weeks apart, and they typically will occur in signs opposite to one another. So for example, Taurus and Scorpio, which are signs that are opposite, or currently right now, the eclipses are in the process of shifting to Aries and Libra because the eclipses, um, like the nodes, move backwards in the order of signs. And what will happen is you'll get a series of eclipses that will typically take place 
um, into opposing signs for about a year and a half to two years before it shifts to the next set of opposing signs. Does that sound right? That sounds right. That's what we've got down and uh, yep. <laughs> okay. So the nodes represent the, the closer, um, basically one of the ways you can see or find eclipses is that um, when a conjunction or an opposition of the sun and moon happens close to the nodes um, within 15 to 18 degrees, that's when eclipses happen because the nodes represent where the intersection of the paths of the sun and moon take place, uh, essentially, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's where they merge. And therefore, that's that's how they can wind up occulting each other uh, precisely because their paths are, are crossing over each other. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So when the nodes are at the beginning or end of signs, that's where sometimes things get a little wonky and sometimes you'll start seeing the eclipses taking place in signs that are not um, exactly opposite to each other, which is part of what's happening this month when we're starting to have the shift from one pair of signs to another. So for example, here this month in October of 2023, we see that there's a solar eclipse in Libra, but then there's a lunar eclipse in Taurus um, because basically the eclipses are shifting from the Taurus-Scorpio axis where they've been for the past two years to the Aries-Libra axis where they're going to be for, for a year or two. Mm -hmm. All right. Yep. So that's the astronomy. The last thing I wanted to mention then is just like the orb of influence of eclipses. So this is where things get a little bit um, a little bit uh, unclear because there's not very clearly established orbs for eclipses. But certainly, I think in our research, one of the things that we've found is really potent is when you have that two week period of eclipses where you have one eclipse and another, um, that's the most active period for sure, is that period in between eclipses and especially in the range, basically in between eclipses for two weeks, but also in about a week or two time frame before that and a week or two time frame after that. Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, event no event occurs in a vacuum. So when you're looking at that that process of roughly a month, uh, with the eclipses sort of sandwiched in in the middle of all that, um, you're talking about yeah this this sort of isolated period of time where um, uh, these these sort of eclipse uh, related matters uh, uh, can unfold sequentially you know uh, and usually there'll be some huge thing followed by fallout or or something sort of building up to some kind of crescendo but it all happened within the context of that month. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So. What you end up with then, so like with, let's say, um, let me put up a map for, here's a chart for October of 2023. So we see the first eclipse was on the 14th, and then the next eclipse two weeks later was is on the 28th. So that special range in between eclipses is the most intense period, but there's really like an opening about a week before the first eclipse at least like starting on like let's say the seventh that's building up to the eclipse and then about a week after the second eclipse um so seven days after the 28th in this instance so what that ends up creating then is about a month-long window or a month-long period of time surrounding the eclipses which ends up being this like really intense period where the astrological meaning of the eclipses is most acute i think is i think how we could explain it the most broadly right yeah, yeah, precisely. Okay. 
So that's really important. There's other timing things, but I think that's the main thing I wanted to explain about the orb of influence. Certainly, the closer an event is to an actual, the exact eclipse, you know, that makes it more potent or more intense. But there is this range, as we're going to see in the example charts we're about to go through. Yeah. All right, cool. So I think that's good for the astronomy. Let's start talking about the astrological meaning of eclipses at this point. So we'll explore the meanings mostly through our examples, but just to give you some ideas, um, eclipses tend to be interpreted as negative omens in ancient astrology. There's a definite tendency to treat them as negative omens, and ancient texts often connect them to things like the rise and fall of kings and emperors, natural disasters like earthquakes, um, wars and battles, major battles, um, plagues and famine, and other things like that. So there's a tendency to interpret eclipses as negative omens because they represent an interruption in nature where the light of the luminaries of the sun or the moon is suddenly extinguished in a part of the day or the night when it shouldn't be. It's like, you know, every day we have this experience of just the regularity of nature and the cycles of the sun and moon and day and night. And there's something, you know, reassuring about that that creates kind of like a foundation for our entire existence. But then eclipses are weird because every once in a while, like they're, they're somewhat rare, they're pretty rare, something will happen where suddenly the normal natural like nature sort of cycles or or of our day-to-day -day experience is interrupted by this thing that extinguishes something that's important for the very existence of life which is the concept of light um mm -hmm. the light of the sun or even the light of the moon exactly so um so there's a tendency in traditional texts to view them as negative. Um, in modern astrology in the 20th century, they tend to be treated more like supercharged lunations, where the rationale was if a lunation or a new moon or full moon, that is to say, represents the end of one cycle and the beginning of another at a new moon, or if a full moon represents a culmination of events where the moon goes from new moon to reaching its peak brightness and, and most mature sort of fullness, then an eclipse by extension represents like a major end of one cycle and the beginning of a major new one, or an eclipse lunation represents a major culmination of events. So that tended to be how they were viewed more in the late 20th century. So in the research we'll share today, I think we'll show that both the ancient and the modern perspectives are valid and relevant in terms of many of the negative things being true, but also how they represent major beginnings and major endings, which are my, always my main keywords for eclipses. So great beginnings and great endings. So they also more broadly seem to involve collectives and groups of people. And I think that's one of the themes that we're going to see very... Um, very starkly is, is the involving of the collective when it comes to eclipses, right? Mm -hmm. In a yeah. big way, in a big way. Okay. Um, so, and lastly, they do represent great beginnings and great endings, although sometimes great endings or the ending of an era can involve, you know, in its most extreme form, the, the death or the destruction of something. Well, in other instances, it can represent the birth or the foundation of something new that will last for many years to come and that will influence many people. 
And these are some of the themes that we'll see come up over and over again in eclipses. Um, eclipses also have this chaotic or sort of electric or charged quality to them, which you can really sense when you're in the middle in between two sets of eclipses, like we are this month, and when events start moving very quickly. Um, some yeah. of the other... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, that's... Um... In terms of addressing the the question of of eclipses, typically having a negative connotation, I think one of the most accurate words you can use in the context of eclipses is crisis, which in itself has an implied negativity, and yet, uh, as often as not, crisis is some opportunity to fix something that's been uh, either broken or hasn't it hasn't existed but needs to exist uh, right up until that point. So insofar as eclipses are related to new beginnings, they're usually new beginnings that evolve out of some sort of crisis that had to be addressed or solved or, or what have you. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so some of the different keywords I wrote down, and this is not um, fully everything, but some of the keywords I was writing down were ominous, out of the ordinary, extraordinary, beginning, ending, birth, death, ascension, descension, rise, fall, and especially fall from grace is a key word that we'll see come up. Yeah. So we'll I, the other thing I would say is, is endure, <laughs> endure. Mm, um, that which endures. Yeah. Yeah. About sort of, you know, enduring some trial of fire or, or, you know, some, some crisis as I'm, as I'm saying. Yeah, for sure. All right, so those are our initial keywords. We'll see more as we get into the examples. So let's transition into, I want to talk about the Mesopotamian tradition here to set up some of the backdrop for the oldest recorded understanding of eclipses that goes back to the very beginning of the astrological tradition about 4,000 years ago to about 2000 BC. So um, eclipses may have been some of the earliest celestial omens that were recorded in Mesopotamia, which is um, where modern-day Iraq is roughly, where the Western astrological tradition started for all intents and purposes, or at least the foundation of the, the Western astrological tradition. So um, most of the early omens that were written down on cuneiform ta form tablets, the earliest astrological omens that survive in written form, actually relate to eclipses. Um, and very early on, eclipses became associated with the death, deaths of kings and leaders. Um, so one of the reasons for this is that there may have been these three different reigns of certain kings that ended coinciding with an eclipse. So, so specific, there may have been three specific kings very early on in the Mesopotamian tradition who died at the same time that an eclipse took place. And one of the researchers I was reading, um, Huber, he said, you know, if that was true, uh, and, and this was noticed over the course of like a century, then of course the Mesopotamians are going to, you know, start paying attention to this. And this could have been the thing, I believe they speculated, that um, acted as the core of the foundation of the astrological tradition is seeing this really momentous event of the end of a, a king's dynasty and then having that coincide with a very visible solar or lunar eclipse in the sky at the same time. And that would have then created the foundation of understanding the basic astrological principle, which is that there's a correlation between celestial movements and earthly events. And from that point forward, the Mesopotamians started to 
study and record those observations between celestial movements and earthly events very intensely for many centuries, which is what eventually developed into the astrological tradition. Mm -hmm. So um, eclipses um, in the Mesopotamian tradition, they also related to other things like wars and battles, sickness and plagues, market shifts, interestingly, which we'll see later, as well as natural disasters like earthquakes. So um, one of the earliest records I was able to find was the Mesopotamian king Shulgi of Ur mentions a solar eclipse that coincided with a battle circa 2000 BCE. Um, I also found a report from a Mesopotamian astrologer, um, and his name was Nabu Ahi Ariba, who was an astrologer in the Mesopotamian tradition, later on in the Mesopotamian tradition around 666 BCE. 666 um, BCE. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, you, was... did a, you did a great job of pronouncing his name, by the way. Your, your Babylonian Thank you. is impeccable. With your deep knowledge of cuneiform and, and Akkadian, <laughs> I appreciate that. So oh, yeah. this is a report that he was sending to the king, and there's this funny little remark about it. Um, where he's reading off some of the canonical omen series of the collected omens that were collected in Mesopotamia and the rules that they give. And one of them, it says, if the moon is surrounded by a halo and cancer stands in it, the king of Akkad will extend the life. This night, the moon was surrounded by a halo, um, but it did not close. If the moon is surrounded by a drawing, there will be an eclipse. And then he says, parenthetically, eclipse means trouble. So that's, you know, kind of an important statement there early on in the Mesopotamian tradition. And his summary is like, eclipse means trouble. Um, I found another report from, I think, around the same time frame, like the 7th century BCE from another astrologer where it's reading some of the interpretive rules. And it says, for example, if there's an eclipse in Sivan three, which is the third month on the 14th day, a mighty king who is famous will die, but his son who has been designated for kingship will take the throne and there will be hostility. Variant, there will be deaths. Then it gives another one. If there's an eclipse in Sivan from the first to the 30th day, eclipse of the king of Akkad, there will be a peak flood and Adad will devastate the harvest of the land. A great army will fall. If you perform it for the well-being of the king's city and its people, well-being, there will be a decrease of barley. If there's an eclipse in Sivan III at an unappointed time, the king of the universe will die and Adad will devastate. A flood will come. Adad will diminish the harvest of the land. A leader of troops will fall. Um, if Jupiter becomes steady in the morning, enemy kings will be reconciled. So these are, I just wanted to read that off to give you some sort of like idea of the like tradition that started to develop over hundreds of years of recording observations of what happened when eclipses happened in the past as they started um, collecting these on these tablets and then passing them forward for generations so that by studying the past, astrologers in the future would know what eclipses would mean when they reoccurred again in the, in the present or in the future. Um, as well as some of the types of events, which seem very dramatic when they're talking about like deaths or they're talking about famines or floods or other things like that. Um, but as we'll see, there might be good reasons for 
some of the things that they that they said. Um, the last thing I want to mention, or is there anything about that that you find interesting? Uh, well, I mean, all of it, but let's let's move on. Okay, we're doing this kind of quick, basically, because we have a huge outline. So exactly. for the list for the listener, we didn't want to get stuck on the introduction, so we're just trying to jam through the introduction so we can get to the examples, and we are almost almost there. So that's just that's why we're moving kind of quick. And Nick is gonna have a lot more to say about some of these examples when we get there. That's right. I'm letting you speak so that I don't slow us down. Yeah. Okay. So the last thing I want to mention about the Mesopotamian tradition is their lore surrounding eclipses, and especially that they tended to be potentially negative omens for rulers and for kings and the death of kings was so much so that eventually they developed something called the substitute king ritual, where what would happen is under certain circumstances, if there was a really negative eclipse that happened, and through their interpretive rules that they had developed over centuries, it indicated that it would pertain to the leader who was in charge at the time, the king, and that he would die, they would then resort to these different propitiation rituals or Namburi rituals. And one of them was the substitute king ritual for where for a period of time, they would actually make somebody else king. And the goal was to transfer the omen from the king to the substitute. And during this time, the king was referred to as a peasant or as a farmer and was like no longer the official king during that time, essentially. And sometimes this period of the substitute king could last for up to 100 days, although it could often also be much shorter. So this is like how intense you know, the Mesopotamian tradition became how much of their observation of this um, led to, you know, them trying to sometimes take some pretty extreme measures just in order to avoid the negative indications that they came to associate with eclipses. Yep. Yeah. So Dope uh, strategy. Yeah. Well, side note, really cool movie idea. I hope somebody makes someday is a movie about like a substitute king who gets switched out um, and then they almost kill him which is unfortunately part of the, the darker side of that sometimes and the darker side of that history in the tradition. But uh, in my version of it in the movie, um, he would outwit the palace officials and manage to stay king from that point forward, and then it would have a happy ending. Amazing. Yeah, you you, amazing you idea. would go all Hollywood with that. You really would. Yeah, I, don't know, I would. Um, the, there was a movie called King Ralph with John Goodman. I don't think it was exactly like he was a substitute king, but somewhere in, in the recess of my memory, I think there is some movie or comedy show or setup that that does resemble that storyline where, where you have someone who's put in as a substitute king and somehow uh, maneuvers their way out. I'm trying to remember, is it Mel Brooks? Richard Pryor, I, I, yeah, I can't remember, but you, you may not be the first um, Hollywood whiz kid to come up with such an idea, such a premise. Still a good all right. One. Well, maybe I'll be in the starring role. Maybe that can be the difference. Is I'll That's be the right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that'll work. That'll work. All right, hit me up, Hollywood. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm open. Okay, obviously chock full of charisma. This one. Exactly. Well, that's why it would work because I'm so charismatic that <laughs> they would right. want to let me just stay king and the old king yeah. would be like, it's yours. Yep. There you go. All right. Good times. So that is the introduction. We've gotten the introduction out of the way in a surprising 30 minutes. Um, so now let's transition into our chart examples. So I want to start first with um, a section on the 
birth, ascension, and death of world leaders and other no noble figures in history as our first set of charts. So the very first one I want to start with, actually, which turns out to be the most famous, probably eclipse one in history, and even though it's connected with the, the religion and some of the sort of mythology surrounding it, it's still potentially the most famous example in history, which is the um, death of Jesus. So Jesus, of course, in the Gospel of Matthew was famously said to be born under some unknown astrological alignment that signified his birth. But then even in the Bible at the end of his life, there is actually eclipse imagery um, on the day of the death of Jesus. Um, so especially in the Gospel of Luke, um, 23 uh, sections 44 to 45, in the New American Version of the Bible, it says, quote, it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon because of an eclipse of the sun. And then there's two other gospels that also note a sudden midday darkness. So this is often interpreted as an eclipse taking place in the middle of the day. And, you know, regardless of like debates over the historicity of that or what have you, it means that very early on in the Western tradition of Western like culture and religion, we have this story about the death of a notable figure at the time of an eclipse which sort of, at the very least, sort of like cements that in our sort of like collective psyche, I think, to some extent, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's for that. But getting into more secure dates with other historical figures, the first one I want to mention is Alexander the Great. So Alexander was probably born July 20th, 356 BCE, which was 10 days before a lunar eclipse in the sign of Aquarius, which took place on July 30th. So this is our first example of a theme I want to, we'll come to a few times with different examples of sometimes what happens is important people are born um, around the time of a solar or lunar eclipse. And this is our first example of that. So what's interesting when that happens then is that sometimes when a person is born near an eclipse, eclipses can then may um, can then show up at very crucial times in that person's life at very crucial turning points. So for example, Alexander, this famously happened at the Battle of Gogomela, which was preceded by a lunar eclipse by about a week. So the eclipse. Um, should have taken place September 20th, 331 BCE, and all of the armies were like meeting up. This is the armies of Alexander and the Greeks and Macedonians out of Europe who had stormed out of, out of Greece and had taken over um, and, and were basically in the process of fighting the Persian king Darius. And this was the final decisive battle um, where Alexander defeated Darius and then became the undisputed king of what for him, at least for them, was like almost the entire known world at that point, because there was no other major military power that was able to defeat Alexander um, after that, besides the Persian emperor who was just defeated. Yeah. And Gagamela is sort of northern Iraq. So ironically, it's also pretty close to where <laughs> all the astrology was being done. Right. Um, well, yeah, and that's really important because, and that actually comes up like astrologers feature in the story, but that was um, 
one of the things that happened is this eclipse happened as the camps were meeting up. And so both sides had astrologers, but reportedly um, it, the Persian side was actually the most spooked by it. And they were the ones that would have had the Mesopotamian astrologers that knew this is a bad omen for the king at the time who was Darius. Mm -hmm. And indeed, Darius was defeated. And then after this point, Alexander, you know, comes to dominate the um, the Middle East and Persia and Egypt, all the way over to the westernmost portions of India. So this happened at the final culminating battle and one of the most important battles in human history. Mm -hmm. um, an eclipse took place like literally right before it. Yeah. So interestingly, Alexander later, um, the astrologers tried to warn Alexander after towards the end of his life when he came back to Babylon. Um, presumably because they were seeing some sort of omen about his impending death, which may have been eclipse-related. We're not really clear, um, but he ended up not uh, sort of following that. There's some gar garbled um, account that almost sounds like an allusion to a substitute king ritual, but it's not really clear at this time. But then Alexander ended up dying under mysterious circumstances in Babylon, and then his entire empire was like divided up by his generals after that mm -hmm. all right so that's example one um second example is the emperor constantine the first um so constantine this is one you worked on do you want to introduce this one um no you you go ahead i i mean uh, you know um it, it's it's pretty succinct you you do a better sure. job yeah okay so constantine this is during the time of the Roman Empire, and Constantine was actually proclaimed emperor by his army on July 25th, 306 CE. And this is two days before a solar eclipse in Leo on July 27th. So he was proclaimed emperor basically on a solar eclipse, which is pretty striking, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Constantine was important because Constantine is the one who um, converted to Christianity and ended up um, issuing the Edict of Milan, which proclaimed that and permanent, permanently established religious toleration for Christianity uh, throughout the Roman Empire after a few centuries of persecution. So what's interesting about this is the Edict of Milan was issued in February 313, sometime in February, we're not sure the exact date, but there was a lunar eclipse the same month in the sign of Virgo. So there's a very good chance that the Edict of Milan, which is one of the things that Constantine was the most known for, which basically established legally like Christianity in the Roman Empire, um, that one of the things he was most known for in terms of that occurred right around the time of a lunar eclipse, which is pretty striking. And then finally, Constantine himself died May 22nd of 337 CE, and that was five days after a solar eclipse in Taurus, which occurred on May 17th. So he was proclaimed emperor on an eclipse, he legalized Christianity on an eclipse, and then he died on an eclipse, which is pretty compelling, I think, right? Yep. Yeah. Do you think it... Yep. It's compelling. How do you feel? What's your reaction to that? <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I, I was just letting you get through it so we could, we could, uh, uh, keep moving. But yeah, no, it's. I mean, that that's the thing. Um, and this is a pattern we're going to keep seeing. Uh, is uh, often people these these notable people are born during eclipses. 
uh, one of their most sort of enduring, uh, um, you know, acts or events or what have you, something that they instigated in history that that had a lasting effect, that the thing that they're known for would also occur during an eclipse. And then even, uh, you know, sometimes their death as, uh, and in, in Constantine is a, is a hat trick in this case. We, we get all three uh, of those in one. Right. For sure. Um, the only one we're a little uncertain about is his birth dates. So that's the part we can't get, but that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so moving on to our next example, the next example is Napoleon, who was actually defeated at the Battle of Waterloo on June 18th of 1815, and this was three days before a lunar eclipse, which occurred on June 21st in the sign of Sagittarius. So this marked the end of the Napoleonic Wars that had engulfed Europe up to that point, and it actually, um, after that point, there was a relative period of peace from all the way up until um, World War I began in 1914, um, almost a century later. Yeah, that's right. Um, Napoleon wasn't born under an eclipse, nor would he die under an eclipse, but there was a lot over the course of that period, the French Revolution leading up to Waterloo. Uh, a lot of the sort of big events and certainly the big military battles in particular um, occurred during eclipses. So prior to Waterloo, there was Borodino, where Napoleon fought uh, the Russians after his invasion of Moscow that famously went terrible for him. Um, the uh, the sort of the um, the the battles uh, that he had previous battles with Russia, previous battles with Wellington before uh, um, uh, Waterloo battles that he had in in Spain and Portugal against uh, or that his army had against Waterloo occurred during eclipses, uh, and even during the French Revolution, um, famous battles like uh, um, Valmy and uh, um, Hondeschut and these these famous battles uh, that that occurred during the Revolutionary War were all during eclipses. And Napoleon had even seized power. The famous coup of 18 Brumaire in November of 9th, 1799 uh, was close to an eclipse. So yeah, his his timeline is is. Uh, loaded, especially when it comes to these really decisive battles, and not just his timeline, I'd say the timeline of the French Revolution, uh, the eclipse periods pop up exactly where you would sort of expect them to be, where there was some kind of crisis, and and one phase of the revolution would give way to another, and, and what ends with... Um, with uh, Waterloo and that that same week that the Congress of Vienna is sort of uh, tying things up in a neat little bow. And indeed, you have lot largely a, a lasting peace in Europe uh, for the next century, uh, apart for a little skirmish, if you will, in the Crimea of all places. Sound familiar? Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that would be interesting to look at with the yeah. eclipse repetitions. Um, mm. But for our purposes, the main thing emphasizing here is just Already we've got like two of the biggest battles in history, um, the Battle of Gagamella with Alexander and, and the Battle of Waterloo, which is one of the most yeah. notable and well-known battles in history, and both of them occurred right around the time of an eclipse. All right, so moving on, the next example, um, the Emperor Hirohito, who was the emperor of Japan during uh, World War II, so Hirohito was actually born about four or five days before a lunar eclipse in the sign of Scorpio. So he was born on April 29th, 1901, and the eclipse happened on May 4th in Scorpio. So one of the things um, I thought that was the most interesting about Hirohito's life when it comes to eclipses is that after World War II, um, the the U.S. and the Allies basically forced Hirohito to issue a declaration 
which is known now as the, the Humanity Declaration. And this occurred two days before a solar eclipse. And what happened is that in this declaration, Hirohito denied the concept of his own divinity, because up to that point, the emperor of Japan had been treated as a god by the people of Japan for centuries. But all of a sudden, there's this very important turning point in history, where all of a sudden, the emperor is no of Japan is no longer seen as a god. And this declaration, this turning point in world history occurred two days before a solar eclipse. Yeah, that's right. Um, and you know, there were there were other things in Hirohito's life leading up to that that also uh, coincided with eclipses. So here again, we have someone who was born during an eclipse. Um, but when the Japanese uh, uh, military um, invaded Manchuria, beginning with a, a skirmish in Mukden, uh, September 19th, 1931, this was seven days following a, sol a solar eclipse in Virgo and seven days before a, a total lunar eclipse in Aries. So absolutely one of these areas we're talking about where you're in between the solar and lunar eclipses or lunar and solar eclipses. Um, and then there was also the uh, the signing of the Axis Pact, Germany, Italy, and, and Japan on September 27th, 1940. Uh, uh, signed the the the, the Axis Pact as as the you know, the Second World War was already underway, but really sort of cementing their alliance. Um, and this was signed in Berlin on September twenty seventh, nineteen forty, as I said. And this was three days prior to a total solar eclipse at eight Libra, and nineteen days before a lunar eclipse in Aries. Wow. Okay. So that's really yeah. important and crucial. So, and the other thing that's worth noting here is this is our first example where. Um, this eclipse actually hit a very personal planet in Hirohito's chart, and that's part of the reason why it was so important. Um, so this uh, this is Hirohito's chart, which has 26 degrees of Sagittarius rising, and the ruler of the Ascendant, which is one of the most important planets in the chart, is Jupiter, which is placed at 13 degrees of Capricorn. And the solar eclipse that occurred on January 1st, 1946, when the Humanity Declaration was issued, that eclipse took place at 12 degrees of Capricorn. So it was very closely conjunct the Jupiter um, in Hirohito's chart, which was the ruler of the Ascendant. Yeah, so and, the, and the, planet, the, the planet of a living god, if we ever had one. Would be Jupiter. Yeah, I'd say so. For sure. Um, so this brings up points that we're not going to get into a lot in this because we're primarily just pointing out in this episode coinciding of major historical events that occurred around the time of an eclipse. But um, there's further interpretive principles underlying a lot of this, which is that if an eclipse um, falls very close to a personal planet in a person's chart, especially within a degree or two, that's when you know even more so that that eclipse is going to be very personally relevant to that person. All right. So, um, is that it? Yeah, I think that's it. So that's the yeah. initial section that I wanted to do on some births, ascensions, and deaths of world leaders. There's going to be more of that. Um, so one of the things we've seen, so, and one of the things that's cool, and we're going to keep doing this is running through like older history up until more recent times. Um, one of the themes that we've seen already start to come up a little bit here, um, for example, with Constantine was the death of a major wo world leader under an eclipse. So one of the other themes that came up a lot in some of our research also 
um, that comes up sometimes is that there have been a number of notable um, assassinations of world leaders that have occurred on eclipses as well. So that's the next segment I wanted to do. And I meant to mention earlier that we're going to kind of front load this episode with a lot of the more more negative or challenging examples in the first half of this episode, um, many of which kind of confirm some of the older Mesopotamian tradition that tended to associate clips with negative things. And we're going to see how a lot that a lot of that actually still plays out and holds true today. But then in the second half of this episode with our examples, we're going to get into some of the more positive um instances where eclipses actually coincided with good things or things that are potentially much more positive than some of the negative examples. All right, so assassinations. The first and one of the most notable ones um, is the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So Abraham Lincoln was famously assassinated by John Wilkes Booth, and this occurred just four days after a lunar eclipse. So Lincoln was assassinated. He was shot on April 14th died on April 15th, and a lunar eclipse had taken place in Libra on April 10th, just four days earlier. Um, so this is a pretty notable example um, because one of the things from an interpretive perspective is that his death actually happened in between eclipses, where an eclipse happened, then he died. And then what's interesting is that he had a very long and very public funeral procession, which then took place where his body was loaded up on a train, and then it, it went around to several different states in the United States where there were hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of onlookers who paid their respects before it eventually made it back to his home state in Illinois. Um, but what was interesting is that the second eclipse in the series occurred um, right in the middle of this whole funeral procession when a solar eclipse occurred in April on April 25th in Taurus of 1865. So what happened is he died very close to the first eclipse, and then the second eclipse two weeks later, it happened um, right in the middle of when basically the entire nation is like mourning and grieving his loss, essentially. And interestingly, that specific day, um, April 25th was the day that his body was shown in New York City, which I have to think probably would have been one of the biggest cities, if not the biggest city. So therefore, that may have been the day that his funeral or his body had like the biggest audience potentially. I don't know if that's true, but that's kind of my inference. I, what do you think? What I do know about that day, there's a famous photo from the 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 funeral procession in New York City because you can see there's there's the, this crowd. It's a street picture, and you can see the procession moving through the streets of New York. And out of an open window in a building, they've identified that there's a boy watching the procession, and that boy is Theodore Roosevelt watching Lincoln as a as a young kid. Roosevelt would have been about seven or six or seven years old, six and a half at the time, and he was he watched. Uh, uh, Lincoln's procession go by the streets in New York. This is a famous photo, and it certainly looks like a, a big crowd to me. But there were huge crowds everywhere, and I don't, I don't know the actual figures of attendance. But it would stand to reason that New York would be the biggest or one of them. That's amazing. Um, yeah. 
I just wanted to interject one thing, and we're going to stick with with Lincoln. But there, there's a, a sort of a, an elephant in the room that that we're um, overlooking. The eclipse on April 10th that occurred just before he was murdered um, also occurred one day after. Uh, Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox. And this is something else that we keep seeing, sort of like Waterloo or Gagamela. There's also the ending of a war that's coincident with, with Lincoln's assassination. So as we're moving into assassinations and their relationship to eclipses, we're also seeing a, a sort of a um, an overlay of a theme that we've already seen a few times uh, here, which is is the the you know the surrender of an army. For sure. And you know, it's interesting, both of those carry the theme of like major endings. One of them is a major ending of a war, you know, which which arguably, although I guess depending on what side you're on is like a good thing. Um, but I guess that's somewhat subjective, theoretically. Uh, but the other one is a major ending in another instance of a person's life. And I guess that's one of the reasons I connect the major endings and major beginnings things to eclipses is that like, there's no greater ending in some instances than the sort of finality of, of death in some instances. And I think that's where it ties in to some extent. Yeah, certainly deaths. I mean, Lincoln is, is you know, seemed to be a, a martyr for a cause in some ways. Like he wasn't, he isn't merely a murder victim. He's, you know, it's a, it's a very symbolic murder. Um, and that's that that's something that really seems to pop up in, when when people uh, are taken from us during eclipses or around eclipses. Yeah. So and this was not the only eclipse in Lincoln's history. It turns out that the Gettysburg Address, which is his most famous speech and one of the most famous speeches in American history, um, happened in that range in between eclipses. So the Gettysburg Address was delivered November 19th, 1863, and this was just after a solar eclipse had taken place on November 11th in Scorpio and just before a lunar eclipse happened uh, in Gemini on November 25th. So this is something we're going to see come up over and over again, that, that there's just really important events that happen sometimes in that two-week interim period that intermediate intermediary period in between eclipses in a given month. Yes, so. that's right. Um, and then a, a year after Gettysburg, um, Lincoln was reelected in November of 1864. Uh, and this is six months before his assassination, of course. And as you know, eclipses are, uh, uh, occur at these six month intervals. Um, and his reelection on November 8th occurred in between a solar eclipse in Scorpio on October 30th and a lunar eclipse in Taurus on November 13th. So yet again, uh, not unlike his his assassination, um, the, the Gettysburg Address and his reelection in 1864 uh, both occurred during this, this special period in between eclipses. Yeah, that's super important. We'll see that come up over and over again. So, and then Lincoln, just to summarize, like why is Lincoln an important figure if you had to summarize it in a very short paragraph? Um, well, he he ultimately redefined what the United States would be from here on. Like it was, it was literally a different country prior to the civil war than it would be afterwards, a lot more centralized for starters. Uh, and obviously with some important new laws in place, uh, but it really did sort of well, change the, the nation of the, the, the nature of the nation. Right. So he was the president during the United States Civil War, which is the deadliest war in American history, and also the president that ended up ending slavery effectively. Yeah. Okay. 
So um, that's one in, in his assassination is one of the most famous sort of events in American history as well. All right, so that's one. Um, the next example that I wanted to talk about is um, Martin Luther King Jr., who um, unfortunately was also assassinated very close to an eclipse. So Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. Um, and this happened in that space in between eclipses where a solar eclipse had just taken place on March 28th in Aries and a lunar eclipse took place after his assassination on April 12th in Libra. So what ended up happening is he was basically assassinated right after an eclipse. And then um, there was the president, for example, declared, declared a national day of mourning on April 7th, and his funeral ended up taking place on April 9th, which is very close to the second eclipse on April 12th. Yeah. Yeah, so, and yet again, yet again, we have someone who's who's seen as a martyr. Uh, um, you know, it's it's not merely the murder of a person, but but uh, a sort of a symbolic uh, um, sacrifice uh, uh, that's made for for a, a great cause, not unlike Lincoln. So yeah, it's it's not merely the murder of a human being. It's it's something far far more, far greater. Yeah, when well, he was one of the greatest to again could help me summarize what was significant sure. about his life for let's say somebody who has no it, background on american history he was one of the greatest civil rights leaders in our yeah. in american history he was he was an important leader uh in the the human rights movement of the united states in the 1950s and 60s that led toward um amongst other things uh, just a greater um sort of consciousness and self-confidence amongst the african american uh, public, but certainly, you know, his um, his efforts helped desegregate uh, uh, different sort of areas of the United States for starters, and and uh, in different ways, sort of enabled set 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 up a structure or set up a a precedent by which um, citizens in the United States felt that they could um, advocate for themselves a lot more effectively. Um, so it's it, yeah, it's, it it ties into the the larger sort of voice of the protest movement, the various protest movements in the '60s, uh, that I think came out of what we call the civil rights movement. Yeah, and he was also involved in something that'll come up again later, which is the Civil Rights Act, one of the major civil yeah. rights acts and pieces of legislation um, that helped to end segregation and other things related to it which we'll come back to later because it turns out that that was actually connected with an eclipse. And we're going to have a whole segment actually later on in the second half of this episode on eclipses actually being tied in with different civil rights movements, which turns out to be one of the positive sides of eclipses that we'll get to later. Yeah. All right. So um, another major assassination, and this is, I promise the last assassination we'll do, I think is um, one of the other major assassinations that took place in the 20th century was the assassination of the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, um, who was Prime Minister of Israel in the 1990s and who helped to broker the Oslo Accords, which was a peace process between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, and he ended up getting, as a result of this, um, he was murdered by a far-right Israeli extremist which partially helped to derail the peace process. So he was killed on November 4th, 1995. He was shot and killed. And there was a solar eclipse that occurred right before that in Scorpio on October 23rd. 
So it, again, ended up being a um, kind of ominous thing that happened where there's an eclipse right before the death of a major world leader. Yeah, yeah. And and again, someone who who died for a specific cause. Um, so it's, a, again, it's not merely the murder of a human being. It's it's uh, someone who's been sacrificed, um, you know, in the name of a, of a crisis. Again, that, that, that term comes out. I mean, all these all these sort of largely negative connotations that come out of eclipses just have to do with these are crisis periods where uh, something has to give, something has to change, you know, uh, something has to disappear in, in order for something else to, to emerge in its place. I mean, yeah, that ends up being the effect. I don't know that it's like, it's not that this needs to happen in the sense that this is a, ter these are all terrible, tragic events and hopefully shouldn't ha shouldn't happen but they there are definitely different things that come from them and like in like different positive and negative ways mm. um they definitely end up being intersection points i think in human history in very major ways and i think that's one of the themes we'll come back to over and over again as eclipses as a nexus or an intersection point in human history mm -hmm. All right, so that's the end of that section. I wanted to start a new section talking about the births of world leaders and major figures, because that's something we touched on a little bit in some of the previous ones, but I want to drill down into that just a little bit more with some contemporary examples of that. So the first one is Barack Obama, who was born six days before a solar eclipse in the sign of Leo. And interestingly, so he was born basically on or close to an eclipse his first inauguration, there was an eclipse that occurred right around that time when he was first inaugurated and became president in 2009. So this was a solar eclipse in Aquarius, which is also his rising sign, just six days after he was inaugurated. He was inaugurated on January 20th, 2009, and then this eclipse occurred right after in Aquarius on January 26th. So that was notable. And then interestingly, um, he was re-elected four years later, and what happened is the eclipses shifted to his 10th house, and what happened is um, he was re-elected on November 6th, 2012, and then right after that, there was an eclipse in the sign of Scorpio on November 13th after he won a second term in office. And that ended up being one of the indicators in both of those instances, the fact that he had a solar eclipse happening in his first house on inauguration day, essentially in 2009. And then that he would have an eclipse in his 10th house right after the 2012 election ended up being indicators that he would be the one who would win the presidency over the people he was um, running against uh, previously, which are John McCain and um, Mitt Romney in 2012. So that actually turns out to be a pattern that is held up over the past several presidents, where over the past two decades, almost every president that ended up winning their election had an eclipse take place in their first or 10th house around the time of the election. So that happened with Obama, both of his presidencies, um, as we'll we'll get into in a minute, it also happened with Trump, it happened with Biden, and it also happened with George W. Bush, and probably goes back further, but for our immediate purposes, it's actually really striking that every presidency over the past two decades has had that. Mm. 
um, with um, George W. Bush, it was eclipses in Leo and Taurus in his first and 10th house and so on and so forth. Right. And as for uh, inaugurations during eclipse, the prior one had been uh, Reagan during his first term uh, was inaugurated during an eclipse. So it does happen from time to time. And usually with these very sort of popular um, um, presidents. And Reagan, that one was like on the day of his inauguration? It's very close. I would have to look it up to double check, but it's very close. Okay, no problem. So, um, so that was, you know, that was notable is that Obama born at an eclipse and then became president twice for two terms when eclipses hit his birth chart in very prominent places. Another recent example was um, Donald Trump, who was born literally the same day as a lunar eclipse in Sagittarius. It's one of the most striking things about Trump's chart is that he was born the day of a lunar eclipse. And what's interesting then is that, of course, for those of us who have been around over the past few years, right after he was elected, the so-called Great American Eclipse occurred in 2017 in Leo, where there was this major solar eclipse that happened that was visible across a large part of the United States and that millions of Americans witnessed. And this happened about six months into his presidency. And in retrospect, ended up being an indicator that he would be the one that would win the presidency because it turned out that that eclipse fell very close to the degree of his ascendant, where that eclipse happened in late Leo and his ascendant is in late Leo. Yeah. Um, and of course, you you remember he famously looked up at that eclipse without wearing eye protection when everyone else was uh, um, <laughs> taking the usual precautions. Um, he threw caution to the wind. Yeah. So that was a notable one that occurred um, a bit into his presidency. Um, all right. So those are the two presidents. There's a, another more recent one that's a little bit more developing, but it's going to lead us into another subsection, and that is Prince William, who was also born on the day of an eclipse. So let me give a short snapshot version of why his is interesting, and then we're going to go into a longer um, subsection about the British royal family and how eclipses are just all over their history over the past century. So the short version of the Prince William one is that Prince William was born the day of a solar eclipse in the sign of cancer, literally the same day. Um, His parents, Charles and Diana, were married at the same time as an eclipse. Um, Prince William's later wife, Kate Middleton, was also born the same day as a lunar eclipse. Then his mother, um, Princess Diana, died just a few days after an eclipse in, what, 1997. And then finally, his father, uh, Prince Charles, now King Charles, his coronation occurred the very day of an eclipse just earlier this year in 2023. So that's the sort of snapshot version that's already like when you put it like that is pretty striking and it seems like it can't get any more striking than that, right? Oh, I'm going to say no, because I know what's coming up. (laughs) You would think. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But spoiler alert, it's just the... It's just the shaving from the top. It goes so deep. That is the tip of the iceberg. All right. So it turns out that the British royal family over the past century has eclipses just like all over the place, everywhere you look. And this is going to be a little deep dive, but this is still probably only just scratching the surface. 
Good thing right. you have an American audience because no one else is interested in the British royal family. <laughs> yeah. So, well, and we'll try to explain it for everyone that doesn't follow like the British royal family and, and some of the nuances, but all right. So here it is. So um, King, now King Charles, Prince Charles, who is William's father, was born two weeks after an eclipse. So he was born November 14th, 1948, and a solar eclipse happened just before that on November 1st in Scorpio. So that puts a little bit of an eclipse imprint in Charles's chart. So that is two weeks. So that's like the, I don't want to say the upper limit, but for the most part, we've tried to stick in our methodology with eclipses about a week or two before or after eclipses. Most of our examples fit that, or they fall in the in-between segment yeah. in that two-week period in between eclipses, right? Charles is about as far as we allowed ourselves to stray outside the range of the exact eclipse. But um, you know, because everything else in his life, from his wedding to his children to his coronation, because everything else, uh, and even like the like their divorce was announced under an eclipse and all this stuff. So just everything in his life is uh uh just as I as I said to Chris earlier, chock full of eclipses. Um, and so with that in mind, yeah, we're 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 mentioning his birth, even though it's not as close, it's pretty close, but not as close to eclipse periods as all the other examples that we're giving you today. Yeah. Well, I think though it points to that the range is a little bigger than you might think it is, um, because he's sure. two weeks, but he ends up being a compelling example. So okay, so Charles is born basically on an eclipse. Then the next piece is that Charles and Diana were married under an eclipse. They were married July 29th, 1981, and there was a um, solar eclipse on, there's a lunar eclipse first before that on July 17th in Capricorn, and then there was a solar eclipse right after that on July 31st in Leo. So they were basically born within a couple of days of a solar eclipse, or they were married within a couple of days of a solar eclipse. All right, so Charles and Diana married under eclipse. Then Prince William, a year later, was born the day of a solar eclipse in Gem Gemini on June 21st, 1982. His wife, Kate Middleton, was born the same day as a lunar eclipse in Cancer six months earlier before William. So Kate was born January 9th, 1982. There was a lunar eclipse January 9th, 1982 in Cancer. Um, the book, Diana, Her True Story, was published by Diana on June 15th, 1992, close to an eclipse. And that was that was kind of part of her like expose about the British royal family, right? Yeah, yeah. And it would lead to six months later, uh, the, the separation of Charles and Diana, which would begin their ultimate divorce. Uh, that, that was announced on December 9th, 1982, also close to an eclipse, six months after that book was published. So, so Charles and Diana's separation was announced close to an eclipse in December of 92? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's one. Then Diana, of course, famously died just two days before a solar eclipse um, in a car accident in Paris. She died on August 31st, 1997. And then there was a solar eclipse in Virgo on September 2nd. And then just a few days later, her funeral took place on September 6th, 1997. Um, next, Charles' coronation happened the day after a lunar eclipse earlier this year. 
So he was coronated on May 6th, 2023, and a lunar eclipse had just taken place in Scorpio the previous day on May 5th. So that's it. So we're, that's now it. We're that's done. all. That's it. We, we have surely, nothing more to say about the British royal family. That's surely there's nothing else there. No, can't possibly. No, you are mistaken. Wait, it what? Gets, it gets weirder. Exactly. What? No. I didn't want to tell you about this, but it turns out there's more. Oh, all dear. right. So Nick found these. So <laughs> it turns out that um, there are eclipses going further back in their family history. So Queen Elizabeth, Charles's mother, ascended to the throne close to an eclipse when her father, George VI, died on February 6th, 1952. So he died after a long illness. And then immediately after he died, Elizabeth ascended to the throne, becoming Queen Elizabeth II and taking on all of the responsibilities that came with her new title. So he died February 6th, 1952. There was a lunar eclipse on February um, 11th in Leo, so right after the death. Five, five days after, yeah. Yeah, and then his funeral took place February 15th, 1952. Right, right. And uh, just, just to explain for people who aren't familiar with the process. So um, there's the, 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 a royal will ascend to the throne, and then they'll have a coronation. So the ascension happens right when their their parent, usually it's the parent of, of the new uh, royal dies. And so they immediately, they're the new king or queen. Uh, but then usually about a year later, Charles was shorter than a year because I guess it's it's easier to do it sooner. But it used to be about a year. Uh, they wait and they have a coronation. And that's the big ceremony where uh, the, the royal in question fully becomes the, the 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 monarch sort of official, if you will. Like, yeah, like like an inauguration, except they are officially, you know, or, or unofficially the, the, the monarch prior to the coronation as well, as soon as they ascend. Yeah, that was one of the things a little weird about Elizabeth versus Charles, where for Elizabeth, the eclipse happened when her father died and she ascended. Right. And then for Charles, the eclipse really fell right on his coronation for some reason. Right, right. Um, and but yeah, um, usually leading up to Charles, the 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 sort of the pattern in the 20th century was there tended to be eclipses uh, uh, at the ascension of a new royal when when the previous royal died. So uh, George the sixth is just the first of three examples in the 20th century of this uh, because when um his father, uh, uh, well, actually, let's before when he became, uh, king, uh, when his brother abdicated, his brother uh, had been King Edward VIII, who uh, famously abdicated to the throne to marry uh, an American divorcee. Um, so, and to said that, so this is Queen Elizabeth's father, who died and made her queen. Right. Um, this is who we're talking about now is Queen Elizabeth's right. father, who is George the Sixth. That's right. And her uncle was Edward VIII. So her uncle was king. So this is the thing is Elizabeth wasn't born to be queen. I mean, she was born in in, the, in line to be. Uh, but the idea was that her uncle would, uh, you know, marry a quote unquote suitable, uh, um, uh, you know, royal, uh, a suitable wife, uh, one that he could have children and they would go on to be the next kings or queens of, of England. But since uh, he abdicated the throne and her father was unexpectedly thrust into the throne, and that suddenly made her, you know, the the, the next queen sort of out of nowhere. Well, and it was and, because it was like Edward VIII, um, who was he was only king for less than a year, but yeah. then he wanted to marry this woman. Um, but because she had been divorced, 
um, it was going to create like a major political it, crisis. It was, it was absolutely unheard of at that point. I mean, that's this has been sort of the ongoing struggle in the British royal family over the course of the 20th century as they you know try to be uh, human beings while holding these these insane titles. Um, but yeah, I mean, long story short, um, when when Edward VIII abdicated the throne on December 10th, 1936, it was just three days before a solar eclipse on December 13th. And this suddenly put, not only it put her dad like right in the in the in the in the hot seat, if you will, uh, where he would suddenly become, become king, even though he was unwilling and unprepared. Uh, but it also suddenly meant that she would be the next queen, which she had um, also not expected. Yeah, one of the things I love about this example is so this is an abdication, so it's like the end of one king and the beginning of another's reign. But in this instance, it's not a death; it's somebody giving up the kingship. Um, in order to pursue a relate a romantic relationship. And um, one of the things I like about that is like a, for those wondering, it turned out to be like a happy story and they like lived happily ever after. like once he ceased to become to be king and then went off to marry this other woman, right? Well, I mean, you know, um, <laughs> okay. I mean, they, I mean, sort of, sort of, I mean that, you know, there was, there was some, some, uh, bitterness, but I mean, they didn't struggle. I mean, some people struggle much harder. Uh, um, so it's hard to be too sympathetic. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they lived luxurious lives, but somewhat, somewhat in disgrace. I mean, I, I guess the hardest thing was they were sort of persona non grata to, uh, his family for the longest, longest, longest time. And so, you know, um, that that's uh, personally painful, uh, but that was the sacrifice he made at the time. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so there, there was um, another example we wanted to mention well, about this yeah, though, right? Uh, um, well, yeah, more, uh, did, did we, I was going to go into how Edward VIII became king. Well, we haven't uh, finished with George. Oh, okay. This, have uh, we? Well, the, I mean, the, the um, well, so the point is that, hold on first. So, okay. 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 So George, George the sixth was Elizabeth's father. Um, he became King when Edward the eighth abdicated. What's right. interesting about this is he abdicated the throne on December 10th, 1936. And then there was a solar eclipse three days later in Sagittarius on December 13th, his solar return that year ended up being that eclipse right right good yeah i should have mentioned that there you are so here's um just to show it here's the chart we're not showing a lot of charts because that would eat up a ton of time we're just you know saying them and and it's when the eclipse is on his son that he's suddenly thrown into uh, uh becoming king because it's yeah his brother abdicates three days before four days before his birthday well yeah okay so um, so that's really interesting. And again, it just brings up the point about if a, if an eclipse is very close to conjunct a personal planet in the chart, it will have a tendency to be more personally important. It also brings up a thing we may get into a little bit later about solar returns, that when a solar return happens close to an eclipse, sometimes it indicates a very important year in the person's life. I think we have a couple examples of that later. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Okay. So, and then the final thing was um oh yeah so the the king that abdicated in order to get married he actually then gets married under eclipses um yeah. in the subsequent year like six months later i believe right 
Six months later, yeah, which is also right around. Maybe maybe we don't have it in the in the thing there, but that's also around when George the Sixth has his coronation. Uh, um, is also the same, uh, you know, during the same eclipse period. I'll just look up the wedding date uh, while you talk about the wedding. So the wedding date itself, they were married June 3rd, 1937, and there was a lunar eclipse that had just happened on May 25th in Sagittarius, and then there was another a solar eclipse that occurred just after on June 8th in Gemini. So that one I like because it's like he steps down and ceases to become to be king on an eclipse, conjunct his son, and then six months later in the same eclipse series... Um, where it's still bouncing back and forth between the same two signs between Gemini and Sagittarius, he then actually gets married. Yeah, yeah. Um, King George VI was crowned uh, on May 12th. So it's a little bit before this eclipse period, but not too long before, just like two weeks before the lunar eclipse on May 25th. So oh, yeah. yeah, that all came together. Because that was the thing, to go back to that whole uh, uh, ascension and then coronation, Edward VIII was immediately called king because he had ascended to the throne, but he had, he had never had a coronation. It was his brother who had the coronation in his place. Okay, because he he wasn't yeah. king long enough to have a coronation. Exactly, because they usually wait about a year, uh, which takes us to the next uh, eclipse and the next death. So how did Edward VIII become king? Well, it was because his father, who was also Queen Elizabeth's grandfather, King George V, he died on January 20th, 1936, um, which was um, after the, a lunar 12 days after a lunar eclipse on January 8th. And uh, just under a month after the solar eclipse on uh, um, December 25th in, in Capricorn. Um, king George V had been king since 1910. So it was like, a, you know, about a quarter so, of a century. And with I, him, he died because he, his, he died his health declined over the previous few months due to a chronic health issue of some sort. Yeah, um, but it's it's actually it's a little more sort of uh, <laughs> in some ways, in a, in a very, very slight way, he was murdered. <laughs> uh, let me explain. Yeah, uh, please. He, he was he was dying. It was nighttime, um, and they knew he would he would die like within the next twenty four hours. But there was a great concern over what time of day he would die because that would determine which newspaper would announce his death. And the sort of snobby upper class, you know, people around the royals really preferred that it would be, I think, the London Times, if I remember correctly, uh, which was a morning paper. Whereas if he lived a little bit longer, his death would be announced later in the day of one of the sort of lower class uh, afternoon or evening papers. Um, so his doctor basically gave him a lethal dose of morphine at night to ensure that his passing would occur in time for his death to be announced in the London Times and not some, you know, sort of uh, rag sheet or whatever they would have considered it. Okay. Um, yeah, that's just that's if, that an interesting detail in in all that. Um, but but that's yes, more, that's like euthanasia or. Well, I mean, yeah, he was about to die. So when I say murder, I was obviously I was being deliberately. Uh, um, you know, uh, farcical, but uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, in I a very know. tech, his, his doctor did instigate his death. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I don't want to joke about stuff like that just because I want to get the history down as clearly as we yeah. can here. Um, yeah, yeah. But, I... but anyway, so he died basically on an eclipse again. Close um, to it. Yeah. So, and this is, this is George the fifth who died, which made Edward the Eighth King and Edward the Eighth is the one who abdicated the throne for for love. Um, so then it goes back further, right? 
Yes, yes, because George V had become king when his father, King Edward VII, died. He died on May 6, 1910. Um, Edward VII uh, was was famously sort of overeater, heavy smoker. He just lapsed into a coma and died, uh, but his health had always been bad. And he died one day after a solar eclipse uh, in Taurus on May 9th, uh, 1910. Uh, three, day, he, three days, right? Three, oh, sorry. Yeah, he died three days before the eclipse, rather. Yeah, he died May 6th. The eclipse was May 9th. Thank you. Right. So again, it's just like we just went through a long list of basically all of the ascensions and descensions and especially deaths of kings in the 20th century in the British royal family were all happening on eclipses. Yeah. And these are the three kings that occur in between Queen Victoria, who was Edward VII's mother, and uh, uh, Elizabeth II, who was the daughter of George VI. Um, but this does take up, you know, the first the first half of the, the 20th century. Um, the three monarchs who ruled uh, reigned during that time, I can't say ruled, that's not really true, who reigned during that time all uh, uh, died or ascend, uh, ascended during eclipses. So that's just like, can we take a moment just to process that? Like, that's just incredible to see when compared with, you know, because this is modern history. We're talking about over the past century, of course, but compared to some of the the tablets that we were reading from like Mesopotamian astrology from 3,000 years ago, from 4,000 years ago, where they started making, where there's these potentially legends where some of the scholars aren't clear is like, did this happen? Did this not happen? Like did eclipses actually happen after three kings, when three kings died and their reign began or ended 4,000 years ago? And was that the start of the astrological tradition? And the reason why then Mesopotamian culture developed this intense fascination with watching the skies and recording events on earth you know, is that how astrology started? Well, if we look at modern parallels, it's still happening for some right. reason. And so we could very well say, well, yeah, that may have been what some of the first astrological orb observations were at the very beginning of our tradition that led to astrology. And this is why, because this phenomenon is still occurring. Sure. I mean, if we... um hypothetically had never had astrology if it had never existed uh but we came into the 20th century and we were studying uh, uh astronomy and we noticed that these kings kept dying during eclipses that might have been the kind of observation that would prompt us to invent astrology if you will uh, if it had never existed already for sure yeah all right i want to take a little bit of a break here at this point mm-hmm all of the charts that we're presenting here um, are being shown with the software called Solar Fire by alabe.com, which you can get a 15% discount on by using the promo code AP15. And I'm actually excited to announce that we're actually releasing part of Nick's database of 20,000 astrological charts for sale, um, which can be used in Solar Fire for the first time ever after about three decades of Nick researching them. So you've been compiling this database for uh, almost 30 years now, right? 
Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, uh, twenty five, more than twenty five. So yeah, nearly thirty years um, that I've been um, compiling charts for Solar Fire, and um, I'm releasing a, a database for astrologers to use. Um, these are three files from my personal database. Um, the first is uh, the general natal file. So this is over thirteen thousand charts of timed and untimed nativities. Uh, birthdays for all kinds of major and supporting historical figures in politics, the arts, and to a lesser degree, sports. Uh, secondly, I have an American history file. This is um, nearly 6,000 charts of timed and untimed charts of people and events covering the entirety of U.S. history. And finally, there's a Great Britain file. This is 2,500 charts of timed and untimed charts of people and events covering um, the history of Great Britain and Ireland. Brilliant. So this is you're releasing all of all three of those, which totals over 20,000 chart files as a single package. And this is really exciting because I've been in, encouraging you to release this for years and to make it available for the public, because this is actually a large part of what we drew on for our research in this episode and is what it's part of what allowed us to do this research, because when you have this database, SolarFire has some very powerful search features, which you can use to search through the charts in the database to look for specific configurations. So for example, in our research here, we used SolarFire to search your database for charts and events and people that were born at the time of solar or lunar eclipses, which is one of the things that you can do with SolarFire. So it becomes a very powerful research tool when your database is combined with SolarFire. That's right. You can do searches for any number of astrological factors. You can um, say in the the American history file, look for you know any chart that had Mars and Scorpio, or any chart that had Venus trine Jupiter, or you know what have you. Any kind of aspect, any planet in sign, uh, you know uh, solar lunar uh, phenomenon, anything like that um, can be researched really easily and really effectively. Uh, um, and it's sort of, yeah, relatively large uh, um, samples of, of data to use. So uh, yeah, and that I'm was very just excited like, to share it. That's been indis indispensable for my research over the years and for this episode. Um, what's also nice is that each chart file contains source notes that explains the source and the reliability of the birth data, as well as a rod and rating to rate and categorize its reliability in terms of whether there's a birth time, how reliable the birth time is, etc. Um, the files also contain an extensive write-up with biographical information about individuals or historical information about uh, historic events, which is super useful. So this is um, your first time releasing this as a package. And so we're going to release it here at first with this introductory price of $20. So $20 to get this entire database of 20,000 charts, which can be used in SolarFire. Um, people can find out more information about it at theastrologypodcast.com slash database, and you can purchase it there. Um, if you have any questions, you can email Nick. What's your email address again? I'm at, you can email me at Nick Dagenbest Astrologer, um, Nick at Nick Dagenbest Astrologer.com. Okay. And if this goes well, there may be other future databases. This is an ongoing project, but this is kind of the initial test yeah. to see if there would be interest in releasing the database you've been compiled. And um, I'm excited to put it out there just because it's been such a huge tool for me. And I know it could help a lot of other astrologers to do the type of research that you and I do you know, with eclipses in this episode or in previous episodes, your research with Venus retrogrades is very much reflected in the database and other things like that. So uh, it's a great tool. Uh, and I, I hope a lot of people will take advantage of it. 
Yeah, yeah, they should. They should. It's uh, it's uh, got no end of of uses for um, any any style of astrologer, any orientation, whether you're a professional astrologer or a researcher or what have you. Cool. So people check it out at theastrologypodcast.com slash database. All right. So let's move on to our next section. So the next section is going to be a little intense because I wanted to talk about um, disasters, eclipses as omens, and generally just like not good events that have occurred in world history that have coincided with eclipses because that is definitely one major aspect of eclipses. And then eventually we'll start getting into some more positive or like constructive things after this section. So the first one I wanted to touch on that's one of the most famous events that's commonly talked about in the history books in association with an eclipse that happened is the fall of Constantinople. And this marked essentially the end of the Byzantine Empire. And in some ways, it was the end of the Roman Empire because this was the Byzantine Empire was the empire that survived the fall of Rome when they had moved the capital from Rome to Byzantium or to Constantinople, essentially, so that there was this direct lineage from the Roman Empire through the Byzantine Empire all the way up until this very pivotal day, which is May 29th, 1453. And this is the day when the walls of Constantinople finally crumbled and fell and, and Constantinople was conquered by Sultan Mem Mehmed II of the Ottoman Empire, marking the end of the Byzantine Empire. And what happened is that um, this occurred on May 29th, 1453, and it was preceded by a few days by a lunar eclipse, which occurred on May 22nd in Sagittarius. And what's really interesting about this eclipse is that in the history books, um, it actually would have risen over the horizon and they describe both sides of the of the battle witnessing this and it was like a blood red crescent moon which the people of constantinople who were sort of the inheritors of the greek and hellenistic astrological tradition at that point um, took as a bad omen so the people in the city of constantinople saw this they saw a bloody red moon lunar eclipse rising up over the horizon one night and they knew like this isn't good. Um, and there was also some sort of old prophecy that tied in with the moon as well, which is the other reason that they took it as negative, while the Ottomans actually took it as a good omen for them, which turned out to be true. So one of the interesting takeaways from this is like, you know, one man's bad omen can sometimes be another person's good omen. It kind of just depends on what side you're on or what your perspective is. Right. So that's a pretty striking one, right? Like the fall of Constantinople because of the important role role it played. Absolutely, it it also it does occur to me. Um, I've 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 been to Istanbul, and um, the the Byzantines that you know they would have been, they're they're looking east, you know, uh, um, where whereas the 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 Ottomans are coming from the east. So in other words, when the eclipse would be, sort of you know in the sky. Uh, um, it, it would be the, the Byzantines would be watching it sort of like in front of them. Whereas, I mean, sure, the Ottomans turned around and noticed it's happening, but it's sort of, it, it's behind them, if you know what I mean. Like there's there's even, there's a sort of um, east-west dynamic in terms of how the, the eclipse appears and uh, and what the perspective is, uh, the literal perspective between the the eventual vankers and the, the eventual vanquished. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, well, and it brings up just points that in the ancient Mesopotamian tradition, they had a bunch of rules for what direction the eclipse shadow comes from and like different quadrants of the moon um, related to different geographical areas relative to their neighbors. And they had a whole system worked out for determining like, does the eclipse refer to our king dying or does it refer to like the the neighbor's king dying or like our opponents in battle, their king dying or what have you. So that there may have been in ancient times, at least some more complicated rules for like what means what, depending on your perspective. And of course the perspective of the observer always really matters when you're looking at omens um, and using forms of divination, which is, this is sort of broadly connected to like the perspective of the observer is actually crucial in that. Yeah, and that's just it because the because the Byzantines were were under siege. You know, they're really only look. They're in their their fortress, and they're looking out. And the only way, to, you know, I mean, they can they can walk around the fortress and go look west or go look north or go look south, but they won't be seeing the Ottomans. Unless you know, besieging their their uh, their fortress unless they're looking east, uh, which is where the eclipse would be coming from. So yeah, I just I find it striking in that sense. Yeah. Well, and it's like they viewed it negative also because the bloody red moon. Mm-hmm. Um, the Constantinople had actually withstood many other previous mm-hmm. attempts to um penetrate its walls and to to take it over because it had just this, it was this crazy like fortress with these huge thick walls um that other conquerors had tried and failed to breach. Yeah, you know, it was it was incredibly well defended, very sophisticated defense systems, you know. Um and then I'm not sure if this is true, but one of the reports I read was that the um, Ottoman uh, side of, of the things that were trying to conquer it and trying to breach the walls may have viewed it as a good omen because it was a crescent moon, which matched the the symbol for Islam, which is like a crescent moon. And I don't know if that's true because there's like a little uncertainty about when that became like the widespread symbol for Islam, but it may be tied in with here, uh, tied in here for for some reason. I don't know the specific history of that, but it it occurs to me that if it hadn't been already the existing sort of Islamic symbol, um, it its presence at this at this juncture would certainly ju- uh, justify its introduction as a symbol for Islam, sure. considering Although... the, the nature of the victory. Yeah. Although there's other reasons. It's like the Islamic calendar is a lunar calendar. Right. And right. that's something we we had a piece here on on we were gonna do a little segment right after the one on Jesus on Mohammed, because we were seeing reports that Mohammed was born near an eclipse, but then we were unable to actually verify that. So we're not sure if that's true. And then right. um we do know that the Islamic calendar um beginning with the flight of Muhammad from Mecca to Medina, um, the start of that calendar actually begins with a lunar eclipse yeah. um, in this lunar calendar. Although in researching that, again, we didn't include it because it um, it turned out that the start of that may have been picked by a later ruler when they were setting up a new calendar. So it's not clear if that does closely correspond to the actual date of the the hijra i think is how you pronounce it of the yeah. flight of muhammad or if it's just a later approximation but nonetheless that's still interesting that at the at the very start of the islamic calendar is a lunar eclipse yeah i mean either either literally or at the very least symbolically for sure yeah so anyway so that's an interesting piece all right so that's one 
ancient like example of like an eclipse being a bad omen at least for the people that were being conquered at that point but it was a good omen for the people that were conquering mm -hmm. um the next one i want to talk about is the titanic which it turns out that the titanic sank in between eclipses in between two eclipses so there was a lunar eclipse on april 1st 1912 and then um right after that the Titanic sinks in the early hours of April 15th, 1912. And then just two days later, there's a solar eclipse on April 17th, 1912. So the Titanic basically sank closer to a solar eclipse right before a solar eclipse, although it was in that really important intermediate period between two eclipses. Yeah. And that was like one of the greatest sort of like disasters of its time, I think, right? Do you know what the total loss it's, of life it's, life it's, was it's somewhere in the thousand like 1000 something it's a lot of people it's a lot of people in a dying in a really horrible way um okay and, and again and this was before the the first world war there's two years before the first world war so it wasn't like you know that the world wasn't really prepared to have like you know over a thousand people die in one fell swoop like that it really was extraordinary um, yeah, it says about some 1,500 people perished yeah, when, when the Titanic famously, which was thought to be indestructible, and it was the largest ship of its time, struck an iceberg and then sunk suddenly in this huge disaster. And then Kate Winslet made let Leonardo drown, even though there was room on the door. I mean, there was room that on the was, door. That was, was probably the greatest tragedy, I agree. That was, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he could have. He could. They could have survived. They could have both survived. Yeah, it was really too. Yeah. All right. Um. So the Titanic. So that's an example of what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about like an omen or like a disaster, where something just kind of random and tragic happens, is something we sometimes see with eclipses. Um. The next one I want to talk about is um the Reichstag fire in 1933 coincided with an eclipse where the Reichstag fire happened February 27th, 1933, and there was a solar eclipse in Pisces on February 24th, 1933, just a few days earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and this solar eclipse, interestingly, was opposite to a Mars-Neptune conjunction. So for those not familiar with like German history, why is that important, or what was the significance of this briefly? Well, um, Hitler had just been named chancellor in January of 1933, um, and in these early years of the 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 Reich, as it were, of, of the, the the Nazi regime, um, the the German establishment thought that they could, you know, put Hitler in power, but sort of control him. You know, he was still he wasn't the top top position yet. That was still uh, um, Hindenburg at this point. Um, so who was the the president, which is a sort of symbolic head of state position as opposed to like the, the chancellor, which was the prime, you know, more like a prime minister. Anyway, um, uh, in order to sort of consolidate Nazi power and and put down his enemies, um, there was a Reichstag fire, uh, the Reichstag being the, the German parliament. Uh, it caught fire and they found a suspect who, you know, probably... If he was involved, he wasn't involved by himself, but he was a, a Dutch guy who um, was was um, sort of mentally impaired, as I understand it, and he was put on trial and executed. Uh, but then more more and more enemies. I mean, the, the the Reichstag fire was used as a pretense for the Nazis to sort of uh, come down on their enemies. And the very first um, uh, inmates of Dachau concentration camp, which opened not long after this in 1933, were uh, dissidents who were rounded up 
you know, uh, people who were sort of against the Nazis who were rounded up and, and uh, put in Dachau. And that's the, the beginning of the whole concentration camp thing. So this is basically the, the, the Reichstag fire being um, a political maneuver, uh, sort of like a false flag in a way to, to put in place in order to um, have a pretext to come down on enemies and be, um, you know, uh, oppressive as the right. Nazis would continue to be for the next 12 years. Okay, so the the Reichstag fire was the pretext the Nazis used basically to seize power, and there have been speculations about whether it was a false flag or not, whether the Nazis themselves <laughs> like started the fire in order. I don't like how it's it's is, if it, it if it's is not that getting a false, into if if it's not a false flag, it's incredibly convenient. Let's okay. put it that way. Yeah. Well, and and the thing I would notice that was interesting when I looked at the chart for this. So here's the chart. And um, we can see this is the chart of the Reichstag fire, and we see the sun is at eight degrees of Pisces, and the moon is at um, thirteen degrees of Pisces, Aries. which means or Aries, thank you, um, which means the solar eclipse just occurred a few days earlier at five degrees of Pisces, and it was opposite to this Mars Neptune conjunction where Mars was at eleven in the Reichstag fire was at eleven Virgo, and Neptune was at eight Virgo. Um, and that's really interesting to me in terms of the discussion about whether it was a false flag or not, just because right. like, you know, Mars, Mars is the planet of like fire and war and aggression. Yeah. And Neptune is the planet of like nebulousness and deceit and mysteriousness. And just the fact that there's still, you know, century later, these discussions about whether this mysteriousness surrounding whether this actually happened and then they used as a pretext or whether they made it happen in order to use it as a pretext um the, the chart just is interesting in terms of reflecting that yeah and you saw that uh, jupiter was there in virgo co-present with the mars neptune and when you think about it, i mean this is february of 1933 exactly one jupiter return later in the spring of 1945 uh, jupiter will be back in virgo as the nazi regime comes crumbling down and hitler takes his life on april 30th 1945 um, so there is, if you think of like the Reichstag fire in 33 to, um, you know, Hitler's death and the surrender of Germany in April, May of 1945, um, you're getting this rather perfect sort of Jupiter return in that whole story as well. Like you can think of the Nazi story being one transit of Jupiter Virgo to a following transit of Jupiter and Virgo. Yeah, that's interesting. So the last thing this brings up is just something the Mesopotamian astrologers were already doing. Um you know, in ancient times, they're paying attention to what planets were configured to the eclipse. And that's something that's still very relevant here, where we're bringing in that there was a Mars-Neptune conjunction opposite to the degrees of the eclipse. Um, and that that adds to part of the subtext of what happened at that time. And I think that's something we see a few times, but I just wanted to mention it briefly in passing, because even though we're not going into that deeply here, because it would just make the episode even longer, it is part of the interpretive approach for eclipses is to see what the eclipse is configured to by very close aspects. Hmm. All right. So that's the Reichstag fire. Moving forward, the next one I wanted to mention is the atomic bomb, the development of the atomic bomb and the very first successful test of an atomic bomb, which is the Trinity test, which occurred July 16th, 1945, happened just after a solar eclipse in Cancer that was conjunct Saturn on July 9th, 1945. Um, and then there was a lunar eclipse right before that, which is on so, June 20, yeah. 25th. 
What? Oh, no, sorry. I, yeah. Um, you said okay. what I was going to say. Yeah. So um, what that means is that the very first time a nuclear bomb was successfully tested happened immediately after a solar eclipse conjunct Saturn. And then, of course, a few weeks later, they the, the United States immediately deployed it in war and dropped the first uh, atomic bombs on a civilian population of Hiroshima on August 6th and Nagasaki on August 9th. Yeah, um, it that is intriguing about the end of the Second World War that the eclipse actually falls as they're um, developing the bomb and not, say, with the surrender of Germany or the surrender of Japan, which are basically, you know, two months on either side of of, um, of this event. Well, I guess two months on, uh, for, for the surrender of Germany and about a month before uh, the bombs are dropped. But in other words, um, this really does point to to this part of 1945 being the most consequential. And you can really understand why, because it's uh, it, it almost sort of dwarfs the fact that um, that there was this terrible war going on against Germany and Japan uh, is the fact that this new technology was developed that, um, uh, you know, has much longer uh, term consequences than um, defeating these enemies uh, involved. Yeah, well, there's an important turning point in human history, which is that that was the beginning of the atomic age and the big the the starting point of um you know what eventually would become the cold war but especially humanity reaching a point where suddenly it could destroy itself like you could realistically humanity could wipe itself out in a nuclear war from this point forward um which would then become the looming threat over the course of the rest of the 20th century and early 21st century um and it literally started with um the trinity test and with the set of eclipses that immediately preceded it, or or in some ways heralded it. Yeah. So here's the chart of the Trinity test. Um, and yeah, that eclipse had taken place on July 9th at 16 degrees of Cancer, and then it was conjunct Saturn, which is around 15 Cancer at the time. And then interestingly, in the Trinity set test itself, Cancer was rising. Yeah. All right, so first atomic bomb eclipse next one jumping forward similar thematically i discovered that the chernobyl disaster which i think was the worst nuclear disaster in history occurred on an eclipse so chernobyl happened april 26th 1986 and there was a lunar eclipse in scorpio just two days earlier on april 24th um, interestingly this lunar eclipse was conjunct pluto so Chernobyl, yeah. worst nuclear death disaster in history. Is that true? Uh, as far as I know, yeah. Um, I, I don't know of any of that's been more serious. There, there, there have been others, but there, this, this was, this was massive because it just sort of it spread all over Europe. So it, you know, it wasn't the kind of thing. It happened in the sort of the top northeastern corner of Ukraine, um, but uh, the fallout was was hitting everywhere, and it really was like a wake up call. Um, but I do believe it's the biggest. It's certainly the most notorious, and it was terrifying at the time. Um, here's the chart. I set it for Moscow. It's not set for a correct location. It's just approximate. But okay. um, this is April 26th. And if you back it up just two days earlier, you see this lunar eclipse right there at about three-ish degrees of um, four, yeah. three, four degrees of Scorpio, basically. 
conjunct closely conjunct Pluto at six degrees of Scorpio. Yeah, I might have the exact time if you wanted it. Uh, I'm pretty um, sure I do. I no, that's all right. We, okay. Yeah, we still have so much more. I haven't been showing charts for the most part. I might put them in in post. I'm not okay. sure, but it's I just what, want to keep us. It's 1.23 a.m. anyway. I looked it up quickly, but Got you don't it. need to show it just to tell you for yeah. anyone watching. Okay. Um, and then the last major disaster I wanted to mention, because again, we've, we've moved up to the present. It's like, um, that's something I keep doing here is starting in old ones. We started with Constantinople, then Titanic, Reichstag, atomic bomb, Chernobyl. Most recent one, I think that was the most notable that's still in all of our minds and that coincided with an eclipse that started with an eclipse was the COVID pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic really um, became known to the world under a set of eclipses that occurred in late 2019 and early 2020. So what happened is that there was a solar eclipse in Capricorn on December 26th, 2019, and then there was a lunar eclipse two weeks later in Cancer on January 11th, 2020. And um, I just want to read you, I compiled some, some um, like a timeline from different websites, which I just want to show on the screen really quick and read mm -hmm. because it really drives home the point. So here it is from our written outline. Um, all right. So like I said, first eclipse, solar eclipse, December 26, 2019, then lunar eclipse, January 11th. Listen to this timeline. December 12th, 2019. So just couple weeks before the first eclipse, a cluster of patients in China's Hubei province in the city of Wuhan begin to experience the symptoms of an atypical pneumonia-like illness that does not respond well to standard treatments. Then jump forward December 31st, so this is just after the first eclipse, which was on December 26th, the World Health Organization country office in China is informed of several cases of a, a pneumonia of unknown etiology cause with symptoms including shortness of breath and fever occurring in Wuhan. All initial cases seem connected to the human seafood wholesale market or Hunan seafood wholesale market. Then January 1st, the Hunan seafood wholesale market in Wuhan is closed amid worries in China of a re reprise of the 2002 through 2004 SARS outbreak. January 2nd, like everything just starts moving really fastly, basically after the mm. first eclipse at the end of December and right before the next eclipse on the 11th. So January 2nd, the World Health Organization activates its incident management support team across all three organizational levels, country office, regional office, and headquarters, I think presumably in China. January 3rd, China informs the World Health Organization that they have identified over 40 cases of pneumonia of unknown etiology. January 9th, so this is just two days before the January 11th lunar eclipse, the second eclipse, the World Health Organization announces a mysterious coronavirus-related pneumonia in Wuhan, China. So this is the World Health Organization announcing it finally to the world. Um, then we jump forward after the second eclipse, which occurred on January 11th, about a week. And we get to January 20th, where the CDC in America says that three U.S. airports will begin screening for the coronavirus. Then January 21st, the CDC confirms the first U.S. coronavirus case. January so it's just 20... 10 days after the eclipse now. Right. So still very close. Yeah. 
So then January 21st, same day, Chinese scientists confirms COVID-19 human transmission. So they've confirmed that it's transmitted from human to human. To human. This is the one I always remember, this New York Times, Times headline. Um, New York Times, January 21st, Ch China reports first death from new virus. Um, I, actually, I think I have another one, another New York Times article. All right, maybe I don't have it here. January 23rd, Wuhan now under quarantine. January 31st, World Health Organization issues global health emergency. So by the end of the month, just a couple of weeks after that eclipse, like this, it's happening. It's like really starting to happen at this point. But just notice how quickly things started to develop in this period around those two eclipses. Yeah, that's a really great breakdown. And I think that illustrates perfectly how you see these things escalate very quickly during that that eclipse period when you're between the two eclipses. Yeah. And it's like one of the things is like this was not the eclipses are not the only thing going on astrologically at that time, because in early January, there was also a Saturn Pluto conjunction, um, which had also coincided with the AIDS outbreak 40 years earlier, or at least when AIDS became known. Um as well as other major losses of life. And then a few months after that, there was a an alignment of Mars and Saturn um, Jupiter. And, Ju and Jupiter and Pluto in Capricorn all at the same time. And that was when the lockdowns happened in the US and pretty much across the world at that point in March and April of 2020. So the point is that there were lots of different astrological factors going on, but the eclipses really seemed to heighten and to highlight a very important period where um, where the pandemic really started to come out into view and become known and where humanity started to realize what was about to happen. Yeah. So that's really crucial. Um, I did have a bit on AIDS, but I'm going to skip it. But I did want to mention at least that um, when AIDS was first named in 1982, um, when they gave it the name AIDS and that acronym, um, it was around the time of an eclipse as well. So there's a whole interesting thing with AIDS and eclipses, but I pulled it out of here for the sake of time, because I think the COVID one, I think, is is sufficiently yeah. you know, sort of impressive. Yeah, agreed, agreed. All right, so I want to move on to the next section, which is on stock market crashes as well as peaks. So this is the last little section on somewhat ominous phenomenon before we get into more positive ones and start looking at the positive eclipse correlations. Um, but this one I think is important because remember, one of the things that was mentioned in the Mesopotamian tradition was like the markets. Um, which is interesting that they were tracking that back in the Mesopotamian tradition and sometimes noticing um, fluctuations in you know, their version of the markets 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Um, but interestingly, that still continues to be the case today where the markets sometimes fluctuate in connection with eclipses. So one of the most famous examples is the Wall Street crash of 1929 happened very close to a set of eclipses. So this was the worst stock market crash in US history, and it signaled the beginning of the Great Depression, and it started happening just days before a set of eclipses. So there was a solar eclipse on November 1st, 1929, and then two weeks later, there was a lunar eclipse in Taurus on November 16th. And basically, the stock market crashed in the week leading up to that Scorpio eclipse, 
which occurred on November 1st. Um, so from, I think it was from Wikipedia, but the quote is, the Great Crash is mostly associated with October 24th, 1929, called Black Thursday, the day of the largest sell-off of shares in U.S. history, which is eight days before the eclipse. But then it goes on and it says it's also associated with October 29th, 1929, which is called Black Tuesday, when investors traded some 16 million shares on the New York Stock Exchange in a single day. And that, of course, is just um, two days before the Scorpio eclipse, which occurred on November 1st. But basically after this point, by the time the eclipse is actually hit, the stock market is just like decimated. Um, and this has just a huge impact on the economy. Indeed, the Great Depression, as it was called, global. Okay, so this was basically then the onset of the Great Depression? Yeah, um, Black Tuesday in particular is usually cited as the, you know, um, single day that begins the Great Depression that triggers it. It took a while for everything to really fully come apart. You know, in 1930, they still think they can reverse it. And by 1932, they know it's it's hopeless and something new needs to be done. Yeah, and in my full write-up, I noticed like... Um, six months earlier, there was a set of eclipses that actually presaged um, mm. or fore foreshadowed what would happen in the the crash later in October and November. Um, but I pulled that out of here just for timing reasons, but there's all sorts of other stuff you could go into here. Yeah, so, you can get into the weeds if you want, but we're just doing the outline. Yeah, but I think this is important that basically eclipses coincided with the worst stock market crash in US history. Um, moving forward to more recent times, um, Bitcoin has actually coincided very closely with lunar eclipses over the course of the past decade or so that it's been around, including going back to the very origins of Bitcoin. Bitcoin was actually invented and introduced by a mysterious anonymous founder who we don't actually know the real identity of this person. But the very first indications that he was in the process of creating Bitcoin happened in the summer of 2008 when Bitcoin.org was registered as a domain name on August 18th, 2008. And this was just two days after a lunar eclipse in Aquarius that occurred on August 16th, 2008. So this is really important. Um, and it's also notable and insightful because Bitcoin itself wasn't introduced until early the following year of 2009 in January, the first Bitcoins were made and astrologers often use that as the founding chart for Bitcoin. But this is a good example that sometimes eclipses indicate that something major has started, but it's something that sometimes starts small or sometimes that is obscure until later on. This is true both in world events as well as in personal events I've seen in people's charts when they're hit by eclipses is sometimes it represents a new beginning that has a humble origin. And sometimes at the time, the people themselves may not even think it's going to be a big deal or they may not know the full implications of it. But if you see an eclipse happening when something new starts, sometimes it in indicates that that thing is going to be much more important or have much more far-ranging implications than you might realize at first. Indeed. So with, with Bitcoin, there's a few other things in the history of Bitcoin more recently. I won't go through all of them, but I did want to mention one that I actually paid attention to and we talked about a lot at the time when it happened. And I actually did 
a Bitcoin episode back in late 2020 after this event happened, which is that Bitcoin reached a new high when it first went when it first hit or started to go above $20,000 in value for each Bitcoin. And that happened exactly on an eclipse, which happened on November 30th, 2020. Um, and that day, there was a New York Times article that was titled, Bitcoin hits a new record, this time with less talk of a bubble. And that ended up being the starting point of a just a meteoric huge rise in Bitcoin that lasted for a couple of years. Um, until that started to collapse over the course of the past year, year and a half or so. And two of those events coincided with eclipses. One of them is that the Luna coin failed in May of 2020. And this coincided with a set of eclipses that occurred in Taurus and Scorpio with a solar eclipse on April 30th in Taurus and a lunar eclipse on May 16th in Scorpio. And it was especially that lunar eclipse in May 16th where the price of this sort of alternative um, cryptocurrency crashed in between the eclipses, eventually culminating on the lunar eclipse, and over $60 billion got wiped out of the digital currency space at this time, so that it was one of the biggest market crashes of the current century, of the 21st century, and it very much shook the faith in the crypto market in 2020. So this occurred in May of 2022. And then six months later, we got the next set of eclipses. And what happens is that right on those eclipses, the FTX collapse happened. Um, so it all happened right around the lunar eclipse in November. And this was a lunar eclipse on November 8th in the sign of Taurus, um, which was followed after, which followed after a solar eclipse on October 25th in Scorpio. And what happened is this ended up being one of the biggest financial frauds in American history and one of the largest and most sudden crashes because it happened so quickly over the course of about a week around the time of the eclipse, and it crashed the value of a bunch of cryptocurrencies at that time. So those are some pretty recent examples which are showing that lunar eclipses are still tied in with markets both like traditional markets, like the stock market, for example, with the 1920 crash, but also even emerging markets like cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. All right. So that brings us to the largely extremely depressing uh, half <laughs> of this half of this talk. And now I want to transition into talking about some of the more positive stuff that sometimes coincides with eclipses, which which does happen. I think that in the first half, we have confirmed that some of the negative stuff is true. Some of the yeah. ancient, ominous readings of eclipses that have to do with the very negative things like deaths and assassinations and battles and market crashes and all this other stuff, you know, is true and does happen you know, because partially because the eclipses are are sort of ominous and because they represent great endings of things. And sometimes an ending can be like the death or destruction of an entity. Um, however, let's talk about some positive stuff because there are a bunch of instances that we found in our research where eclipses actually showed positive turning points for humanity. And that's what I would like to talk about next. All right. So, you feel you feel 
is that good to you or do you want it? We could stick yeah. with negative ones. I mean, I don't know if you <laughs> just like. What I, no, what we'll do is we'll, we'll continue with these positive ones, but I'll do my best to put a negative spin on every single one of them. How's that? That's good. Well, yeah. this first one, I think you is <laughs> arguable depending on your perspective is yes. actually kind of funny. It, it's debatable whether I should have this as the first one, but from my, from my perspective, I'll, I'll say. Oh, it's fine. It's Okay. Okay. Oh, so, yeah, because I'm Canadian and I'm supposed to be on the other side of this this argument. No, I, I wasn't saying that. I was just saying I, you know, as, how as dare Ameri you betray our king? <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So the the first event um, to let people in on the joke is the first Continental Congress met in Philadelphia on September fifth, seventeen seventy four. And this was an event that would eventually lead to the formation of the United States of America as a separate country from Great Britain. And the very same day as the First Continental Congress met, there was a eclipse in the sign of Virgo. It was a solar eclipse, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this is, I mean, think about it. This is the first day that George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John, John Adams, uh, and the other founding fathers are all in the same room. It's the day they're all meeting. You know, these these people are going to make history together. Uh, they're all they all come together and they're just sort of getting a sense of each other and and who they are and what they want to do and whether they have a a common purpose at all. That's amazing. So, and this was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's right. All right. Let me put the chart up for that just so people can see it as a. Uh, for a reference point, because this is one of the most stunning ones, because this is one where it's like not, you know, it's not like a few days before, it's not like a few days after, it's not like a week before, a week after, literally the same day that the First Continental Congress met, there was um, a solar eclipse in the sign of Virgo. Yeah. Yeah. There it is. So it looks like it took place later that night at 13 degrees of Virgo. Um, and it, Actually, that's kind of interesting just in terms of the aspect it's applying to a trine with Jupiter is one of the closest aspects, which is at 16 degrees of Taurus. Yeah. And that means that Jupiter has just made a station that, yeah, indeed, a day the previous day, because when the sun is trying Jupiter, that's when Jupiter makes its station. So that that's also that's a that's a Jupiter making a faucet configured to the eclipse. You know, it's funny actually looking and at it's the, a total um, and it's a total, total solar eclipse. I mean, look at that. The node is right with the sun and moon. Yeah, so there's the Jupiter station. That's not the only planet stationing. Oh yeah, <laughs> look Uranus. At, look at this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uranus is also stationing. I, that that Uranus station, I think I did cover when I was doing Uranus USA because those Uranus stations during the the Revolutionary War are quite spectacular. But yeah, you know, it speaks for itself. This is the beginning of uh, the Uranus and Gemini age, and um, the Revolutionary War is about to happen. I mean, this is this is what this meeting's about. Is like, you know, are we actually going to go to war with Britain? That kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. And you and I famously did a whole episode on Uranus, the re Uranus return of the United States and how there's this mysterious correlation where every time Uranus goes through Gemini, the US is involved in like a major war, which included the Revolutionary War, the Civil War and World War II. And unfortunately, we're like coming up for Uranus going into Gemini here in, in the next few years. So we're all a little bit nervous about that. But for more on that, people can listen to that episode um, what was it? It was called like the Uranus return of the United States or something like that, I believe. Yeah, something like that. It's a good episode. Check it out and we'll bum you out in a whole other way that we've bummed you out with this eclipse episode. Yeah, we are <laughs> harbingers of bad astrological news, but let's do some positive news. Okay, so that one, 
like I said, I mean, I think that's kind of cool. You could take oh, it as pop. Yeah, I, I think it's yeah. I think it's a good one. Yeah. All right. So more positively, the next one I wanted to introduce is that Einstein's theory of relativity was famously confirmed as a result of an eclipse. And this was connected to the Eddington expedition where an eclipse took place on May 29th, 1919. And this was um, basically used in order to confirm um, Einstein's theory of relativity, um, which is a huge turning point in human history and in, in science and in terms of our understanding of the world, which like built on Newton's previous theories surrounding gravity, but also um, changed them in, in like a major way and set up for a large part, like our current understanding of how the universe works over the past century. Yeah, it redefined physics. It, uh, it did away with Newtonian physics or what was not sort of sustainable about Newtonian physics. So yeah, yeah, it's a, a, a real so sea change, a real sea change. So interestingly, they confirmed it through an eclipse because they had to observe eclipse because of the prediction. It predicted how like the light would be refracted. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of interesting. And you could kind of say like somebody could argue and be like, well, it happened on an eclipse because they were looking for an eclipse. But get this. So six months later, um, after the eclipse took place in the Eddington expedition, um, the results of the Eddington expedition were announced at a meeting of the Royal Society in London on November 6th, 1919. And then Einstein became world famous the next day on November 7th, 1919, following uh, the press's publication of what happened and the announcement in that meeting. And then guess what? There was a lunar eclipse in Taurus on November 7th, 1919, right when those, right. those results were announced essentially which is just stunning, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, like you said, that the Eddington expedition, of course, that took place during the eclipse. It had to. That was related to the experiment itself. Uh, but the fact that the the results were announced six months later on the day of an eclipse. Uh, and yeah, and, and Einstein literally becomes a, a celebrity overnight. You know, he, he was a nobody right up until this day, relatively right. speaking. <laughs> So this is a huge turning point in world history, um, you know, both for better or worse, arguably primarily for better. Um, although some of the stuff then that would like later happen, you know, there, there's some other stuff that happened later on that we've mentioned already. This connected is not that great, but I would mark this in the positive category of an eclipse coinciding with an important turning point and positive turning point in world history. So interestingly, in 1905, in Einstein's biography, this is often said to be his miracle year where he published these four different crucial like scientific papers um, that were super important for science and for his biography and everything else. And interestingly, there was, an, a, there was a solar eclipse in Pisces a week before his birthday or his solar return that year. So that it was kind of like baking a, uh, an eclipse into his solar return chart, which would end up designating what's commonly referred to in the history books as his miracle year. Yeah. Actually, the, they give it the Latin term, Annus Mirabilis, which is funny to me because when we were talking about the British royals earlier, uh, Queen Elizabeth would go on to call 1992 her Annus Horribilis. Uh, because it was such a you know terrible year with the divorce and all that, and and that was ninety two as we saw for the royal family was also a 
an eclipse designated year for the Royals, just like 1905 is in a positive sense for Albert Einstein, uh, where he, uh, he, yeah, delivers four uh, really important papers, one after the other over the course of 1905. Nice. That's amazing. All right. So moving on, one of the other most stunning positive events I found in human history that coincided with an eclipse is the United Nations uh, charter was signed. The United Nations was basically founded on June 26th, 1945. And this was literally the day after a lunar eclipse occurred in Capricorn on June 25th. So the United Nations was founded under a lunar eclipse. And I think this is so notable as a positive example, because this is the attempt of the world after the the carnage and the horrors of World War II to try to ensure that that never happened again by creating this organization that was dedicated to allowing nations to talk and negotiate and come to agreements with each other and to create more of a sense of like unification with the world instead of having the world and having countries at each other's throats. Indeed. And it's also sort of a testament to the staying power of institutions that are created at the, you know, during eclipse periods, because the United Nations, of course, was a, a sort of a sequel of sorts to the League of Nations, which had been founded in 1920, not during an eclipse period. And it was notoriously ineffectual and uh, didn't pre prevent the Second World War and uh, was ultimately sort of um, reconfigured into this new uh, this new organization uh, that was, you know, better conceived, better uh, um, organized, and um, for all for all that, you know, its successes and failures uh, uh, has certainly has staying power and and is still a, a you know a, a central force in our society today. Um, so it's sort of a testament, you know, you have these two institutions with a similar uh, um, uh, agenda. Uh, one was not founded during an eclipse period, and it it failed and and didn't accomplish much. And then the other uh, founded during an, an eclipse period, and um, you know it's not it's not a total success, but it's it's uh, it's it's a large success, certainly considered you know compared to what existed before, uh, which was basically nothing. So, yeah, right for sure. Yeah. Um, and here's the chart. So this is for June 26, 1945, San Francisco. This isn't a time chart. I don't know if we have a time chart for the United Nations. So I just have it set for noon. But we can see the sun in early Cancer at four degrees of Cancer and the moon in the middle of Capricorn at noon at like 18 degrees of Capricorn. So we know that a full moon has just taken place. And we see the nodes right there with the north node at nine degrees of Cancer and the south node at nine degrees of Capricorn. So that the previous day, of course, would have been an eclipse, um, which was at three degrees of Cancer, or yeah. sorry, three degrees of Capricorn, I should say. Right. So, um, yeah, so that's one of the more striking positive examples for me. I mean, obviously, you can make arguments about like the ineffectualness sometimes of the United Nations and being able to stop certain things from happening and certain wars and atrocities and other things are ways it's been used. But for the most part, yeah. I think po positive turning point for humanity. I'd say despite its failures, things probably would have been worse if it hadn't existed. You know, that, 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 that would be my, my verdict on it. For sure. Yeah. All right. Other positive things. Um, this is one that you discovered where Alexander Graham Bell 
famously made the first telephone call on March 10th, 1876, and this was the exact same day as a lunar eclipse in the sign of Virgo. Yeah, I mean, you know, Virgo, um, a Mercury ruled sign, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, that's, you know, it's 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 famous. Um, uh, funny enough, uh, Alexander Graham Bell had no idea that this invention would later be used to take videos of cats and things like that. But for the time being, it was just a mere communication device. Yeah, unfortunately, back then, although that's why it's probably the most positive example in mm -hmm. our entire list because of the cat photo taking potential. Right, exactly. Yeah. So here is the chart. So May, March 10th, 1876, and we see the nodes there in Virgo and Pisces, and we see that there was this um, eclipse that went exact at 20 degrees of Virgo, That literally that exact day. So this is, an, yeah. again, this is one of those ones like the Continental Congress and stuff like that, where there's no argument about that. It's like right on the same day, and this yeah. would end up being just like a huge... Um, again, turning point in this instance, in the case of, of technology, but a, a pretty big turning point in humanity and the way that that transformed the world over the course of the next century. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So um, along those lines, in terms of technology, another one that's really important um, that I noted in, in a similar vein is that Tim Berners-Lee submitted the proposal for the World Wide Web on March 12th, 1989. And this is right in between a set of eclipses, or right after a set of eclipses, I should say, where a solar eclipse had just taken place in Pisces on March 7th, so just like a few days earlier. So basically, the proposal and the thing that would become the internet, basically, or the World Wide Web, um, the first proposal for that written proposal was created under a set of eclipses in 1989. So it's kind of like a similar um, thing with Bitcoin, where it's like you can see the genesis of it in the, the creation of that website and stuff earlier under the eclipse, but then eventually the full manifestation of it would come later. But there's something about the, the eclipse where like the seeds of what would later come are really being planted. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and then that's the internet and, the, and just the way that that's completely transformed the world and society over the past 30 years since that time. Yeah. And funny enough, when, when it started, the internet was uh, connected by phone lines. <laughs> so thank you, Alexander Graham Bell, for that. There's almost like a, a, a link between those two. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean and they're yeah. very well, maybe an actual link because it's yeah. in Virgo and Pisces. It's the same like signs and same eclipse yeah. pairs then between those two sets of signs. That's right. All right. So let's transition now into our final section where I wanted to talk about the correlations between eclipses and different civil rights movements, which is a major thing that I found and is probably one of the most positive things that I found in doing some of this eclipse research is the sort of forward progress of humanity in terms of... Um, giving people rights basically um, seem to coincide very closely with, with Eclipse series. So the first one I want to talk about is the 19th Amendment, which gave uh, women the right to vote in the United States. So um, it passed the House on May 21st, 1919, and there was an eclipse in Gemini on May 29th, 1919. Um, 
and then it was eventually passed by the Senate on June 4th, 1919. So what we're pointing out here is that basically there was an eclipse, a solar eclipse in Gemini that happened right around the time that the House and the Senate voted to give women the right to vote, essentially. So it didn't end up actually being ratified by enough states to go into effect until August of 1920, the following year. But it's interesting that the actual like legislative act effort, um, which was the most important part in the House and the Senate, occurred right on a solar eclipse. Um, indeed, it's actually that same Edit Eddington eclipse that we were just talking about, the May 29th, 1919 one. Um, and this is this is an interesting period. There's so much going on in this this May June uh, um, period of 1919. This is also where uh, Germany is is uh, being listed their their terms of uh, surrender and enter, uh, ending the First World War. Um, and of course, Einstein's life is changing at this time. So yeah, there was a lot going on, and um, this was uh, um, really instrumental in this being passed in the United States. I do know we we didn't include it for for uh, um, you know brevity's sake, but um, I looked at the history of the suffragette movement in Britain, and there were a lot of events and key people uh, in that situation, which which was you know to get women the vote uh, in Great Britain. Uh, a lot of those events and people uh, coincided with um, uh, eclipses as well. So there's an interesting history there. We're not covering it today, uh, but there's there's a lot in this history of getting women the vote that coincides with eclipses overall. So this one's important. So this is one, you know, area of civil rights, like women not having the right to vote, and then this finally being changed in the Constitution, basically, with an amendment to the Constitution in the United States, representing the forward progress of women, or at least taking one incremental step in terms of equality between the sexes and stuff, which seems like a very important turning point in human history, like one of many. So moving on to, that's not the only civil rights um, movement that Eclipse has coincided with, though. Another famous one is Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on a bus in Alabama happened just two days after a lunar eclipse. So this occurred, um, she refused to give up her seat on December 1st, 1955, and this was two days after a lunar eclipse um, at six degrees of Gemini. So, and it was also 13 days prior to a solar eclipse at 21 degrees of Sagittarius, which meant that it happened in that interim phase in between two eclipses because of some of the stuff that then would happen subsequent to it, which helped to initiate the civil rights movement in the United States. Yeah, and, and it's such a great eclipse example too, because it's a simple gesture uh, you know, um, it was more, it wasn't as spontaneous as they sort of pretended it was, but it was still, you know, a, a solitary gesture, uh, that initiated, uh, uh, you know, a movement that would, uh, that in some ways is, is still, that still has like a lot of momentum and, and miles to cover today. Uh, uh, but this really got, got the whole sort of movement rolling like nothing else. It's a, it's a really sort of, um, seminal event uh in in the 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 changing um uh perspective on on you know the the right and wrong way to uh run american society and and this was uh uh yeah the the beginning of all that 
Yeah, for sure. So that's huge. And that's a good point because it's like humble, again, humble origins is one of our themes sometimes with these great beginnings of eclipses is like things that have seemingly small starting points in like a small act of defiance, but then snowballs into something like much larger. Yeah. That's great as a recurrent theme. Okay. Um, Other things... Uh, the U.S. Civil Rights Act of 1964 occurred just a week after a lunar eclipse. So the U.S. Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a landmark civil rights and labor law in the United States that outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. Um, and yeah, it fell right in a period with eclipses. Yeah, um, there was a solar eclipse in Gemini on June 10th. Um, and the bill was passed on June 19th. Um, and uh, then a lunar eclipse followed on June 24th in Capricorn. So once again, you're having uh, um, this this event occur right in between those two eclipses in that in that special two week period. Um, and the 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 uh, the act was signed into law by Lyndon Johnson on July 2nd, 1964. Now I promised you I was going to bum you out a bit, so so I will. Uh, amidst all this positivity, there was something gruesome that occurred um, right in the middle during the same period in between these two eclipses. On June twenty first, nineteen sixty four, there were three young members of CORE, uh, an activist group that was working in Mississippi to help uh, people of color uh, vote in the upcoming election, and three of these y- young people, uh, Michael Schwerner, James Cheney, Andy Goodman. Uh, uh, were were murdered and their bodies were buried in a swamp. They were later recovered, but it was this sort of um, another one of these uh, crisis mo- moments in the civil rights movement, and and one that was uh, sort of especially shocking to the public because these were uh, three young men in their late teens, early twenties. Uh, but yeah, that was that that was happening in the midst of all this um, all this other uh, uh, important and and positive advancement in in American law. Um, so yeah. yeah, one of the, um, one of the takeaways I think that's important about this one in particular, where we're seeing, um, the events happen in between the two eclipses, but also like building up to the eclipses and then coming down in the week or so afterwards. Um, one of the takeaways is that eclipses often encompass a process, um, especially during the period in between two eclipses, but it also sort of like radiates outwards at least a week or two before or after each lunation, which creates essentially about a month-long window of time at least, or you know, a portal, if you will, or whatever you want to call it. But it's a portal where something really special can happen sometimes in terms of the positive manifestations of like human progress. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, that's really important. And then that was the biggest civil rights act of, you know, legislatively of the 20th century. But then it turned out that in human history, in American history, that wasn't the only one. But in fact, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 also coincided with an eclipse. Um, So what was the significance of this one again? It was the first United States federal law to define citizenship and affirm that all citizens and equally were um, equally protected by the law. And um, in the wake of the American Civil War, um, it, the the intention was to protect the civil rights of people of African descent who who had been born in or brought to the United States. So this one 
it became effective this this law um april 9th 1866 which was between two eclipses where a lunar eclipse had happened just before that on march 30th in libra and then a solar eclipse occurred right after it um on april 15th in aries right so and, and this was i mean this is a really famous one because that the act was passed by congress and then President Andrew Johnson vetoed it, but then Congress overrode him. And this would eventually, you know, sort of um, snowball into Johnson being the first impeached president. Although like other impeached presidents, the seat of the Senate would uh, uh, not vote to impeach him, but um, he was impeached by Congress. Got it. Um, and there's a parallel there with the 1964 bill where I was reading um, in 1964, I think it was Wikipedia and that was what you were reading earlier. I meant to say, it said, quote, never before in its entire history had the Senate been able to muster enough votes to defeat a filibuster on a civil rights bill. And that was in the 1964 one that happened under eclipses. Um, so there was a similar thing here legislatively where Congress, like the president tried to veto it and then Congress like overrode him, which was um, historic, I think, at the time. Yeah. All right. So that's the American history. There was one yeah. last um, story and, and, you know, there's lots of other stuff we could go into in terms of like American history and civil rights and other stuff. But there was one last story that was really impressive with eclipses that I know you've done a lot of research on yeah. that I thought would be a final, a good one to end with. And this, this is, is a, uh, this is a great one to end with because this is, uh, this is the man I'm going to call the Mac daddy of eclipses. Just everything in this person's life is connected to eclipses, not their birth. Uh, our figure is of course the great Nelson Mandela. Um, so Nelson Mandela was born July 18th, 1918, uh, in Untada, um, which is in the, um, in Eastern South Africa. We don't know what time he was born. He was born in a small village. Uh, at one point, um, someone asked him what time he was born. Um, and he said afternoon, but that's the only sort of, uh, you know, uh, word we have on that. Now, who was Nelson Mandela? Nelson Mandela, uh, was uh, an African activist uh, who was uh, sort of a leader in the movement to end apartheid in South Africa, racial uh, separation uh, in South Africa, which had all kinds of uh, consequences and uh, was really devastating for the African population living there at the time. Um, and yeah, just his his biography is really is replete with events that occurred close to or during eclipses. Um, we're not even going to go into all of them, just just sort of like the really uh, uh, key ones. Uh, first of all, he was arrested three times uh, in his in his uh, um, you know actions uh, uh, working against apartheid, um, and all three of them occurred. All three of his arrests occurred during eclipses. So the first was on July thirtieth, nineteen fifty two. Um, he was arrested. He was arrested in a, in a, in a group with others. I think there were like 18 or 19 others, but he was arrested with them and charged with statutory communism. This was in Johannesburg on July 30th, 1952. Um, basically like communism by association. If you were, if you were acting, the, the position of the South African government at the time was that if you were against apartheid, you were a communist, which was itself a crime. So it was all interlinked, like to be anti-apartheid meant uh, to the South Africans that you were a communist. Um, so this first arrest in 1952 occurred six days prior to the lunar eclipse at 13 Aquarius and 21 days prior to a solar eclipse at 27 Leo. So this is not in the two weeks, but it's less than a week before the first of the two eclipses. 
Um, second, the next arrest, this was even bigger. He was arrested with over 100 people, uh, but he was a real sort of leader in this. He was already making a name for himself. Uh, December 5th, 1956, he's arrested on treason charges in Soweto. And this was three days after a solar eclipse at 10 Sagittarius. Um, and with this, because of this, this treason charge went on for over a year. Eventually they were sort of, uh, you know, the charges were dropped, but the anti-apartheid activists knew that they had to get a lot more serious and probably work underground as opposed to just engage in Gandhian type uh, nonviolent resistance. So Mandela went underground and um, I think he, he was uh, uh, in some way instrumental in blowing up some power lines. Uh, which was considered a terrorist act, although no people were hurt. And uh, he was arrested, this time by himself, on August 5th, 1962, on incitement charges in Howick. I've actually been to the site where this arrest occurred, um, not, not too far from, um, from Durban, north of Durban. Um, and this is the charge that would lead to his eventual life sentence. Um, and this arrest on August 5th, 1962 occurred five days after a solar eclipse at 7 Leo and 15 days prior to a lunar eclipse at 22 Aquarius. So again, like that first arrest, um, it was sort of just prior to um, um, the, the, the double eclipse period, but very, very close to it. Um, so after being arrested on August 5th, 1962, he was put on trial with some other defendants, uh, what was called the Ravonia trial. Um, there were white and black defendants in this big, big trial, huge deal in Pretoria. And um, on June 12th, 1964, Mandela and his uh, his Ravonia, his fellow Ravonia trial defendants, uh, they were all sent sentenced to life in prison. He had actually given this amazing speech where he said he was not afraid to die. They fully expected to be sentenced to death on these charges. And really the only reason they weren't sentenced to death was um, the South African regime was afraid it would you know, muster too much sympathy. Uh, so they were merely uh, sentenced to life in prison. Um, years later, when Mandela would be president of South Africa, he would meet with that judge who gave him the life sentence and, and was <laughs> more gracious than I would be, I'll say that. Um, so this this um, this life sentence on June 12th, 1964, occurred three days after a solar eclipse in 19 Gemini and 12 days prior to a total lunar eclipse at three Capricorn. So that's that same eclipse we were just talking about with the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It's that same period in June of 1964. So that's crucial. It's like, and this is one of the most defining events of his biography is Mandela's yeah. sentence to life imprisonment. Um you know, as part of the struggle for civil rights, literally on three days after a solar eclipse in his That's biography. Right. That's right. And he would stay in prison until the day he walked out of a prison in Parle uh, on February 11th, 1990, uh, which was two days after a total lunar eclipse at 20 Leo and 16 days after a solar eclipse at six Aquarius. So just after the two eclipses, but very just two days after the, the total lunar eclipse. So he was so, sentenced to life in prison. He was arrested on the eclipse. He was always arrested on eclipses. He was sentenced to life in prison on an eclipse, and he was released from prison on an eclipse. And then four years later, he would be elected president of the Republic of South Africa on May 10th, 1994, the day of a solar eclipse at 19 Taurus and 14 days prior to a lunar eclipse at three Sagittarius. So yeah, I mean, just everything... Everything about Mandela's life that makes him uh, a legend and um, one of the most important figures of the 20th century. 
um, that, that all, all correspond to these uh, events in his chronology that occurred during eclipses. And like I said, there's all kinds of other things relating to his life that, that aren't specifically about his, his, you know, involvement in the movement that also could connect to eclipses. I have to say, I've never seen a single human individual have their timeline so populated for want of a better term by events that uh, occurred close to eclipses. So yeah, he's, he's sort of, if, if we were handing out a crown, uh, he would, he would get it for um, the most eclipse connected life I've ever seen. Yeah, that's just incredibly stunning, um, his chart and how striking that is and of how his chronology is tied in with eclipses, but then how his personal story then changes the history of South Africa, changes the civil rights movement there, and changes world history in some ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, he's got a huge international reach, you know. Um, it wasn't just South Africa that he changed. Um, he changed the world. Right. So, um, and here's his chart just briefly. I do notice, I do note that he has like three planets in Cancer. I don't know if that's relevant here because we don't know what his rising sign yeah, is. Yeah, you're 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 using a, a time that that um goes out oh, astro I... data bank, but but it's really not that's just based on the fact that someone quoted him for saying he was born in the afternoon. I think it's yeah. Francis McEvoy's son and daughter-in-law met him and asked him and he said afternoon and that's all we know sorry uh, i wasn't that's paying kind of... attention no, i didn't that's know okay. I, I thought i was trying to cast a noon chart so i'm just going to switch it to like a noon chart because we sure. have no idea but but this is an important point is even though we don't know what time nelson mandela was born we were able nonetheless just looking at the transits of his life uh to garner some really interesting and and seemingly important uh, astrological information with regards right. to his life and with regards to his um, his presence, his impact on history, even though just we can't, using eclipses. Yeah, even though we can't do a you know a proper sort of horoscopic reading of his chart, we can't do his zodiacal releasing or talk about the ruler of his his ascendant or anything like that. But we can say, hey, you know, <laughs> the man's life was uh, was um, continuously connected to these eclipse patterns. Yeah. Um, he does have Jupiter, Pluto, and the Sun in Cancer, so I don't know if that's relevant in some way in terms of why his life is so closely tied in with the Moon and with eclipses by virtue of that. Who knows? But um, yeah, I mean, it was actually a point with Einstein I always thought was interesting is we do have a time chart for him and he has Cancer rising, and right. so I thought it was curious that those eclipses ended up being so crucial in his biography. Yeah, because he's another one, not as much as Mandela, but I certainly, we I found a lot of other eclipse-related events in Einstein's life that we're not talking about today. Things relating to uh, his citizenship, you know, his relationship to Germany, his relationship to the United States, we eventually live, uh, things like that. But um, yeah, indeed, it's it's it, there, there just seem to be some people's lives that are really, really tied to eclipses. And uh, as often as not, there are people who have these uh, enormous impacts on history, even if they're relatively humble, unassuming. You know, neither Albert Einstein or Nelson Mandela were born thinking that they would change the world or born wanting to change the world. Just, you know, they, they were in the, the so-called right place, right time. Yeah. Um, well, so I wanted to end with that example because I think it's really stunning and it shows the interrelationship sometimes where the eclipses are still sometimes indicating great struggle and great hardship at different points in his life and during the process of like, you know, the civil rights movement, different things like that, but then eventually also positive things and 
the positive things of like getting out of jail, um, you know, becoming president and other things like that, and the broader impact that that ended up having on the world at large. And I think that's really illustrative and maybe useful for us to understand when we're trying to contextualize ultimately even events that are happening today or events in the future when we're seeing widespread like tragedy and hardship and injustices and different things like that, that sometimes um, there can be positive things that come out of that in the long term. Um, and when eclipses are involved, especially sometimes you know that um, sometimes those hardships can eventually be the turning point that leads to sort of like a galvanization that hopefully some at some point leads to progress and to positive change. Yeah. <clears throat> like I said at the outset, I think, you know, the eclipses represent periods of crisis. And so crisis can can either, one can either rise to, to meet the challenge of a crisis and overcome it successfully, uh, maybe even to the extent that that um, life itself has improved dramatically, despite the, you know, the crisis instigated the need to, to respond, which in turn improve things. Um, and then at the devastating times, it's just, yeah, crisis and, and people either failing or not being able to to meet the the demands of that crisis. And I think that's sort of, that's the, the dividing line here. <clears throat> Excuse me, when it comes to the eclipse periods is, is uh, there's, there's the crisis that you can meet and, and somehow turn on its head. And then there's the crisis that can just be overwhelming and, and devastating. I mean, that's kind of interesting. And it makes me think of how in one of the previous episodes about the nodes, talking about those as the intersection points between the path of the sun and the path of the moon and how in ancient astrology, the sun was associated with spirit and with choice and acts of volition, essentially free will, whereas um, the moon was associated with, with fortune and with the material realm and essentially with acts of, of essentially like fate or things that are outside of your control. And so maybe part of what we're seeing here with the eclipses is that intersection between choice and fate or like choice and circumstances in these important, like a nexus in time where all those different intersections between a choice and circumstances are all happening to create something that's, that's truly um, important as a turning point. I think that's absolutely correct. Um, I would just add, a, add to that um, um, the, the, the point that the sun and moon are also about the, 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 distinct individual and the the collective. And there's also some sort of merging or interaction between those two forces. And indeed, like when you look at a lot of the events that we've been looking at, it, it has often involved uh, a singular uh, uh, individual uh, doing what they can to, to manage some crisis that really actually has to do with the masses, you know, whether it's Alexander the Great or Lincoln or Martin Luther King or, or Nelson Mandela. Um, or Napoleon, um, just you know that that there's um, that sort of that singular individual who, um, for whatever reason, is is meeting the 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 needs or the crisis of the collective and and um, and molding it in some way. You know, their their actions actually have some kind of impact. That's such a great point because the yeah, the sun and like Hellenistic astrology represents like the king or the leaders or even celebrities whereas the moon represents the masses and the public and the collective. And here we are seeing the intersection of those two things. Uh, yeah. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's how I've always sort of seen the, the, the interaction between the sun and moon, you know, 
uh, those are the the two essential forces. Let's say of politics, right? I mean, the, that's the 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 singular uh, uh, challenge in in having a political life is is somehow mediating the the needs of the individual with the needs of the collective. And every society has its own variant in 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 managing that distinction or defining that distinction. But it's kind of the the basic building block of how we have a, a society, how we have a political world is is. Uh, determining the the needs of the individual versus the needs of the collective. That's brilliant. So maybe then I'm going to summarize part of that and say that eclipses can sometimes represent moments when the action or even the fate of an individual can affect the collective and the world at large. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're in our final section, just talking about like conclusions that we can draw from all of this research. Um, I think, you know, clearly, I think we've shown here that eclipses can sometimes coincide with or can represent major turning points in world history. Um, clearly, they can be tough. Um, I think we've shown that. Are they always bad, though? No. Um, sometimes the endings they represent can be really stark um, in terms of those keywords I always have of major beginnings and major endings where they represent, at the very least, like the end of one chapter and the beginning of another. And sometimes the biggest end to something, the greatest end to something can be like, like the death of something or the end of a life cycle, whereas the, beginnest, the biggest beginning of something can be new life. Um, so I'm reminded of like that famous like 90s semi-sonic song, Closing Time, where they, say, they sing, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Uh, if I had the rights to that, I would play it right now, but I don't I know. I think I, I have it tattooed in Japanese on my arm, that, that same lyric. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's no, what they tell me anyway. Such a joker. Um, all right. And then, so as we've said earlier, like with most techniques, eclipses are an important and major factor. It's a major timing technique, but obviously they are not the only technique or the only factor. There's many other factors involved that we didn't get into with each of these events. Um, that are always happening oftentimes or sometimes happening simultaneously. So for example, zodiac releasing was one of the indicators where I've used for Hirohito, um, indicating a major transition point in terms of career and overall life direction was indicated by the zodiac re releasing technique um, in that year at the end of World War II, and especially when that declaration was made that he was no longer a god. Um, so there's different techniques that sometimes will point to the same time periods and sometimes will give you additional or give you more information about what's actually going to take place at that time beyond what the eclipse itself can tell you. Um, so this technique should be used in conjunction with other techniques. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, <clears throat> excuse me again, I think um, the eclipse periods sort of are, 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 those those periods that sort of determine what the agenda is going to be for the following six months and all the transits, all the other planetary transits that are happening during the eclipse or following the eclipse, sometimes because they're making, uh, you know, configurations or, or conjunctions to the eclipse degree in particular, uh, um, are, are sort of the, the 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 response to whatever crisis the the uh, eclipse period set up. For sure, yeah. yeah. Um, let's see, there's other eclipse, there's other factors also, timing factors that we didn't get into with repetitions. For example, um, there's a 19-year eclipse repetition thing that happens. One of the ones we didn't go into was like, we just had this solar eclipse in 
Libra and there's some of the stuff going on with Israel going into Gaza. And exactly 19 years earlier on the same day, Israel was doing a similar thing in terms of going into Gaza. Um, so sometimes there's these repetitions of eclipses at the same degrees, which can connect together events in 19 year periods or other increments of time, depending on the repetition. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say what happens is that the sun and moon on their own have a 19 year return cycle. If you look at a new moon, like the last new moon we had at the eclipse, <clears throat> If you go back every 19 years prior to that, there was always a new moon, but that 19 year new moon cycle or any sort of lunar cycle of the full moon as well, eventually the nodes sort of wander in and you get a, a sequence of eclipses with that lunation uh, uh, for, for a few 19 year returns. And then the, the nodes wander off and they go back to just being new moons, regular old lunations again. If, if you catch my drift. So there is a 19 year pattern with the sun and moon. And then the eclipse cycle will sort of wander in. And for a period of time, you'll have a sequence of these uh, same eclipses at the same degree every 19 years. Got it. Okay. Um, and then there's also other patterns like the Saros series, which is, is sort of closer to like an 18.5 year type series. That's something I've talked about previously in episode 119 of the astrology podcast that was titled the astrology of eclipses with bernadette brady so you can look into that episode for more on that um, i also actually have done a bunch of previous episodes where i showed how you can understand eclipses and how they will relate to your life personally based on which houses they fall on in your birth chart and if you do a search for um, eclipses as transits in astrology. You'll see one of my previous like core episodes on on YouTube where I did on that doing a workshop. I've done at least two or three workshops on that in the past. Other things that we wanted to mention, I don't think that eclipses cause events to happen, but they just act as like omens or indicators that something important is happening at that point in time. And that's obviously like a part of a broader discussion that's been going on for 2000 years in the astrological community of whether astrology works through signs or through causes or through the planets acting as signs or causes that we don't have to get into. And please don't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We won't recapitulate <laughs> that. Yeah. But I just wanted to mention it because I was wondering if like, like a non-astrologer is watching this and they've just watched this entire thing and they've become sufficiently impressed, but then they're wondering if we think the eclipses are causing like the Civil Rights Act to be passed in 1964, what have you. Like, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I do think there is a weird energy that happens in the month of eclipses, and, and especially in that two-week period in between two eclipses, and we're kind of experiencing that now. But I often think that's because the, the pace of events quickens, and there's all this stuff that starts happening in different stories and different people's lives start like ascending or descending very rapidly so that I don't know that the the feeling of it of like eclipse energy, quote unquote, if you want to call it that, if that's due to some actual thing that's tangible, or if it's just due to the observation that the eclipses are coinciding with very important turning points at that point in time. But I tend to err more on the side of thinking that they are just indicators or markers mm -hmm. of important points in time rather than causes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a whole kettle of fish in itself. Um, my, my, tendency is is to or my verdict if i have one is to think that if there's a mechanism involved if there's something that's making things happen 
it's something beyond the planets and stars that's making the planets turn and making us, you know, have civil rights acts or whatever. Um, you know, that that if if anything's causing any of this, it's not the planets, it's something that's sort of beyond all of it. But yeah, that's so hypothetical that um, you know, it's it's just my notion of of how it all comes together. Sure, sure. Um all right. Uh, other things, we've already said this, but to recapitulate, one of the points I wanted to say was eclipses especially seem to relate to events that involve large groups of people. Why they can be personalized for individuals, for sure, they seem to relate especially to collectives and collective moments of change, beginnings and endings, birth and death. Um, in eclipses, we see the full range of human experience from the absolute lowest depths of human tragedy and suffering to the achievement of the highest aspirations of freedom and liberation. Um, so we've only scratched the surface here. We know that there are many more compelling examples of eclipses that we haven't documented or didn't document here. Um, we're ho our hope is that astrologers can take what we've done here in this episode and some of the research methodology that we've demonstrated, the approach we've demonstrated and replicated, especially in other specialist fields. Um, I was talking to an astrologer from Hawaii has, who has done a lot of work with like um, native hmm. uh, Hawaiian indigenous traditions in astrology and their views on eclipses. And she had pointed out like some important moments in Hawaiian history, like when the first British explorer, when the first European landed in Hawaii, uh, James Cook, it coincided with an eclipse. Mm. So, and that's something I didn't, I hadn't caught, but she caught because she's working in that specific area. And I'm sure there's so many other specialized areas where if somebody really wanted to mm. drill down on a specific field of knowledge or a specific part of the world or culture or historical era that you could find just tons and tons of even more striking examples, because, you know, that's a thing in of itself, but something also is just like, um, in this episode, we focused especially on one-off events, like singular events, but oftentimes events are part of a, a sequence of actions and a sequence of events. It's like a process. And that's one of the things, actually, if you spend more time with eclipses, especially in personal charts that you see, is that the eclipses bounce back and forth between two houses in your chart for about a year and a half. And what happens is the first time they start having eclipses in that sign, you'll start seeing a series of changes in that area of your life, and it'll eventually culminate, and then eventually it will end and pass away by the time that series is done taking place in six-month increments over the course of a year and a half or two. But it's like sometimes it's a process and it's a sequence that you can see as the eclipses keep bouncing back and forth in that area of your chart over a two-year period, and it gives you a greater sense of the the process that eclipses are often a process rather than just a singular event. And while we didn't convey that very clearly in this episode, um, it's something that I think when people start applying this, they'll see more clearly. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe with the the use of my database. Uh, yeah. For well, purchase at the astrologypodcast.com slash database. For sure. I would definitely recommend people availing themselves of that because that's such a valuable thing that you've released um, and that we've used it. Thank you for allowing me to use that and all the work that you put into that. I'm glad that we've gotten a chance to hear as well as in other episodes of the past few years to take advantage of all the research you did for that, um, you know, to create something very concrete for the astrological community. Um, 
by presenting this research and I hope people will, you know, take advantage of get your database so they can take part in that and take part in some of this research and this, what a great time to be an astrologer. Like yeah. imagine like the Mesopotamian tradition thousands of years ago, it's like they were observing these things. They were going outside every night. They're observing the stars. They were especially paying attention to and watching eclipses and then noting what happened and then passing those things forward in cuneiform tablets and in oral traditions over centuries but you know what a great time for us to be astrologers where we can have something like a database that has 20,000 charts that you can search through at the click of a button and and just do all this amazing research with um there's truly like no better time in history to be an astrologer i think that was exactly my thought when i started making the database in the spring of 1999 when solar fire version 4 came out it was the hot new version of solar fire and suddenly you could do what I wanted to do, which was make all these files and do all this cross-referencing. So in other words, like the technology was only just becoming available when I started making the database. Uh, an astrologer who started studying 10 years before me would not have had that available to them the way I did. And of course, that's over 20 years ago now. Um, and, and, you know, everything is accelerated. Um, so yeah, this is a really exciting time. I just want to remind people, you know, when Galileo used a telescope to find the four moons of Jupiter, he was using a telescope that uh, was using new lens technology that had only been developed that year. So in other words, when Galileo saw the moons of Jupiter, look, Galileo was still Galileo. He's still a genius. But that telescope he's using to see the moons of Jupiter, it, it only existed as he was, you know, it only came into his into existence as he was starting that work. Um, Wasn't and, that an eclipse, by the way? Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, okay. um, but that's sort of, that's, that's kind of not to compare myself to Galileo, but um, that, that same feeling like, you know, yeah, you can do something really incredible uh, as soon as the technology becomes available. So yeah, I hope, uh, I hope a lot of astrologers do avail themselves of this database because it really does kick you into a whole other dimension in terms of what you can do uh, research wise, learning wise um, and so forth. So yeah. for sure. Yeah. And we started, you know, speaking of that, um, the emergence of AI that we've seen artificial intelligence over the past year and that we've talked about, and we did try applying some of that to this research. Although it's funny because we're like right on the cusp of that being a tool that's going to be super useful, that's going to really accelerate astrological astrologers research. But um you know, we were only able to, it failed because basically ChatGPT yeah. is still hallucinating and it doesn't do very well with astronomical data. It will come up with fake dates basically when you ask it to look at planetary alignments. So we're still at That's a point where, where the technology is not quite there, but it's almost there. And we can kind of see that we're on the cusp of something huge in terms of that. I, I did take a, a perverse pleasure in seeing you struggling with chat GPT when I was just playing around with my database. And, and um, yeah, um, yeah. For, the time, for the time being, my database is far superior to chat, G, chat GPT. Um, Patrick Watson and I are working on ways to, to uh, um, make the development of my database, uh, uh, you know, cohesive with the development of AI technology. Um, and so we're working on a bunch of different ways to do that. And, um, you know, hopefully we, we either succeed or what we do, uh, you know, the gains we make uh, helps someone else succeed down the road. Yeah. Well, and um, if anybody has any um, specialist training and would like to help, wants to reach out to um, help with that or has any, yeah. any ways that they could, then feel free to reach out to us. Yeah, please do. Although I, I do, I, so far I've had quite a few people reach out and it's almost like, like, 
you know, I'll, I'll get to you when I'm ready to get to you. Uh, um, but um, yeah, this is, you know, it's not something that's going to happen overnight, but yeah, absolutely. This is, this is going to be a joint project in the end. Um, yeah. Well, and I, it's something I'd been working on, but I'm interested in moving forward with in some form with software and AI. Cause I could see in this instance, how, if some of that stuff was in place, like this would have been even more oh, yeah, extravagant. Yeah. Like we yeah. could have gone even further with this if we hadn't been doing it manually. Um, but it also just gives you an idea that sometimes it was just, all we had to do was like think of major events in history. Like what are the major historical events that you learn about in school that like everybody knows about and cast a chart. And then we would see, it was like, it's right there. There's an eclipse. Yeah. Um, it was we, very it was often the yeah. experience we're having. So there's a lot more to learn and find out, I think in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, and it's gotta be a collective movement, you know, um, I made a lot of progress, you know, uh, developing the database, but you know, this took me over 20 years to develop and it's going to get to the point where someone could recreate the same database, maybe in a matter of days and a matter of hours, you know? So, um, you know, I, I, I envy those of you who will be able to avail yourselves of that kind of, uh, effort, although spending over 20 years making a database certainly is a, a an education in itself. So. No yeah. regrets. Well, well, and all of us, you know, stand on the shoulder of giants in terms of our astrological predecessors. And I think what you built, it's one of those things that others will stand on your shoulders in taking things forward. Well, so hopefully in the comments, like other astrologers can do this research and let us know what other major historical events you've found um, that coincided with an eclipse. And if you see any, then please leave it as a comment uh, below this YouTube video and let us know. And that can be a way that we can continue some of this research in the future. Um, but otherwise, I think that by, I think my final remark I wanted to say is just that by reaching back into our history here with eclipses over the past 4,000 years, we have laid a new foundation for the future and the next 4,000 years of the astrological tradition. Um, so thanks a lot, buddy, for doing this with me. Um, My thanks, pleasure, friend. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks especially to all the patrons who support my work on the astrology podcast through my page on Patreon, because that's what allows me to spend all the time doing research like this and then presenting it to the world for free instead of putting it behind a paywall. So I thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, feel free to sign up if you want to support this work in the future. Uh, but otherwise, um, oh, yeah, what's your website, Nick? NickDigandBestAstrologer.com, um, open for business, uh, consultations, rectifications, electionals, Drop, just your plain old country astrologer uh, um, with a little shingle out. Good. Yeah. Well, and Come you find can, me if you um, want me. apply this to people's natal charts in order to help them understand how eclipses have been relevant in their personal life is one of the things you do in addition to, to Venus retrogrades and a number of other techniques. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all a it's all a big kit of of tools that you can use for different occasions. Yeah, amazing. All right. Well, I think that's it for this episode. So, um, thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that help to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including patrons Christy Mo. Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Jeannie Marie Kaplan, and Melissa Delano. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. 
In exchange, you'll get access to some great subscriber benefits, including early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the forecast each month, our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, which is only available to patrons, a whole exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast that's for patrons, or you can even get your name listed in the credits. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking for a reliable astrologer to get an astrological consultation with, then we have a new list of astrologers on the podcast website that we recommend for readings. Most of the astrologers specialize in birth chart readings, although some also offer synastry, rectification, electional astrology, horary questions, and more. Find out more information at theastrologypodcast.com consultations. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of Solar Fire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com. And the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening both in person and online May 23rd through the 27th, 2024. You can find out more information at norwac.net.